The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. When the British poet Ted Hughes was 63 years old, in 1993, he sent a letter to a woman whose son was 16 years old and who wanted to become a poet. Hughes spent a good deal of his time judging the poetry competitions of high school students, if you can believe that. That's not usually what you hear when you hear about Ted Hughes. And what he writes to the mother of this young poet serves, I think, as the perfect introduction to Hughes's work, which I am going to collect here at the end of this introduction that I'm going to give now, about four or five hours of poetry that I've read from Hughes's even larger body of work of more than a thousand pages. And it seems that what he writes to this mother of a young poet uh, is, is pretty perfect, pretty spot on. And this is what he says. The most important things are not technical virtuosity or ability to find apt surprising images, because almost anybody with enough motivation and guidance can learn to produce those, and they are important eventually. The most important thing in the the most important things in the 16-year-old writer are these. An authentic, subjective grasp of his or her own sensibility, or at least a strong tendency towards that, towards trusting their own feelings, their own view of things, towards taking responsibility for their own differentness from other people. Second, a strong instinct for the musical priority in verse, not just for the sequence of sounds, vowels, and consonants in the line, but for the cadence of each line, and the contrast of each line's cadence with what went before and what comes after it. This is crucial because the musical component of verse is an expression of body and of the deeper three-quarters of the nervous system, and without cooperation, the full cooperation of all that, then real writing cannot develop. Third, a feeling hard to analyze that verse is the natural and perhaps only expression for that person, if that person is going to express themselves at all. And fourth, a sense of compulsion behind what is written. This may be the most important of all, a sense that a real situation, a real psychological predicament, is insisting on finding expression in demanding, is demanding the means. And Hughes goes on to say, and the woman's son's name is Gerard, he says, it seems to me that Gerard's poems have these four essentials quite strongly. All that he needs is patience, to defend his corner on his own terms through the next few years, 
I did it by ignoring my contemporaries. Though I had no pop world to contend with no popular culture world, I did have the jazz world, which I ignored. And digging my foxhole in the works of a few great figures of the past, as well as in folklore. My figures were Yeats, Blake, Shakespeare, and Beethoven. But I also devoured Hole, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Hardy, Eliot, Keats, Wordsworth, Shelley, and Wilfred Owen. By the age of 21, I knew all of Yeats's lyrics by heart and a great deal of Shakespeare, some whole plays. I did this not only because I became addicted to them, but to defend myself, as people enter religion to defend themselves. And I read a lot, aloud. All that time, I had no idea what I would do, except that I would somehow write. My mother despaired, but she also supported me. So did my father. I just hacked away at my own path. Can Gerard make anything of this? Well, my blessings on him. Yours sincerely, Ted Hughes. And then he adds a P.S. that uh, that I'm pretty sure my English teacher, when I was 16, told my mother at uh, parent-teacher conferences. Hughes writes this. Uh, P.S. Nearly all 16-year-olds write a lot about death, part of their new craving for ultimate experience and for grasping reality. And the wonderful thing about that note is that the, the footnote to that letter says, uh, neither the mother nor her son Gerard have been identified, so we wonder what happened to Gerard. And in case you think, I'll let the... Uh, the slight on the jazz world go, um, as usual, especially with my uh, episodes on Seamus Heaney, I don't read off what uh, a poet is interested in, because I think it's a prescription of some kind. You should go out and ignore whatever pop culture is and jump into Yeats, Blake, Shakespeare, and Beethoven. These lists, if anything, are, uh, if they're examples at all, they are examples of finding out what your list would be. Someone else out there would have embraced jazz and ignored Beethoven, Yeats, and Shakespeare, and by all means, do that if, as Hugh says, you have moved towards taking responsibility for your own differentness from other people. If you aren't just following fads, follow wherever it is that you're going to go. And before I get to Hughes's poetry, I wanted to read a few more bits from his letters that seem to be good introductions to the kind of poetry he wrote in, uh, what was it? I don't have it in front of me. Of course I don't. Hold on here. In 1960, his uh, second book of poetry called Lupercal was released. And this is what he wrote to his sister about the book and about the Roman uh, religious feast of Lupercal that the book was named after. And after you begin to listen to Hugh's poetry, or if you just fast forward randomly to nearly any part in this episode, uh, you will discover why I am reading this. This seems to be a good explanation from Hughes on uh, a few or maybe a great deal of the kind of violence 
and uh, bodily violence and physicality and the natural world and the violence of human life that he focuses on. This is what he writes to his sister in the summer of 1959. The Feast of Lupercal was a Roman festival held on the 15th of February in honor of Zeus as a wolf. Nobody knows how it originated, but it came from Mount Lycaon in Greece and combined sacrifices, the sacrifices of goats and of a dog, originally of a wolf, I suppose. It was mainly a fertility rite. Various bachelors stripped naked and ran a certain course through Rome. Mark Antony ran, and at the end of the race offered Caesar the crown three times. That's in Shakespeare's play. They were splashed with the blood of the dog and of the goats, and then carried thongs cut from the skins of the goats. Women who wanted a child stood in the way of the runners and held out their arms, which the runners lashed with the thongs as they went past. This was supposed to make the women fertile. It's strange how, since the title occurred to me, that an entire vision of life seems to have grown up for me around the notion of God as the devourer. I'll repeat that, because that is important. Uh, you have the idea of young men doing this. You have the idea of uh, it being a major religious festival, this violence and this sacrifice and this blood. And, uh, and the animals associated with it, the natural world. And finally, you have women who want children being associated with this. So you also have what we might call love, uh, romance, the drama of marriage, family, children, all of it bound up in this. And Hughes says, It's strange how, since the title occurred to me, that an entire vision of life seems to have grown up for me around the notion of God as the devourer, as the mouth and gut, which is brainless and the whole of evil, and from which we can only get certain concessions, but no sermons. The whole idea makes a metaphor of the holy family, and logically poses love, all derivatives of mother love, of Mary, you see, as the only protection against evil, the natural appetite of everything living to devour everything else. The lower orders of life do not have any love, no mother love. The adults devour their own offspring as they find them, and their world is entirely evil. When I look through them, almost all the poems I have in this batch are about nothing else but this. God, the Creator, isn't protective love, but simply absolute power, the irrefutable authority of the need to devour, to live. So God, in the individual, is his own power and assertion, but as he appears in every other living thing, is evil for this individual. This evil in other beings is not, is unalloyed, save by some derivative of a protective mother love. I am not describing it clearly, and I could have said that too. I am not describing it, cle I am not describing it clearly, Hugh says because I am not really wanting to talk about it at all. But it seems to me the essential meaning behind everyone's obsession with crucified Christ, with the Virgin Mary, with the questionable character but supernatural force of God, and with the reducing God to simple creative or electrical, unhuman, amoral, devouring, evil energy, and most of all with some vague redemptive heal-all, 
love, capital L, that it is basically a simple family situation. And that was a mouthful, and Hughes wasn't describing it clearly because he's uh, a poet. The poetry does it. But, um, and that is in his, and uh, the letters of Ted Hughes, page 148 and 149, if anyone wants to go looking for it. Uh, when you get to the violence of Crow, when you get to the, uh, the violence and the difficulty of just being a farmer, or the violence and difficulty of being uh, a husband or a father, or of just noticing how the seasons change, or writing poems about animals, I think you can come back to this page and a half or so of a letter that he wrote in 1959 and learn a great deal from it. And you don't have to agree with him. I certainly don't. Um, I have said to someone lately how uh, how when I'm watching a, a murder mystery these days and you have a murderer who espouses some cheap form of uh, the cynicism of Nietzsche, that we're all alone in the world and death is the end and uh, the world is barbarous and all of this stuff. Um, it's just uh, comical to me uh, these days. But when you have someone like Hughes doing what myths do so well and being able to express that in poetry, even though I don't agree with what you might say the philosophy is, or the theology is underlying it. Um, it is powerful poetry that I cannot live without. And this next passage is actually these next two. Let's see, these next two uh, give an indication of of how Hughes went through these crises in his life and saw his own work. This is a, a letter from 1969 where I believe Crow is about to be released. And he says, I've decided that I've been trying to write verse in completely the wrong way for some years. I've been excluding the real thing. I institutionalized the mode of one or two successes in 1962 and got myself stuck on the board of management. So my best seven years have passed in error and futile strife. Are they the best seven years? Everybody's life, between 30 and 40, seems to be a special chaos. When you reap what the innocent eagerness of your 20s sowed, and before you can wise up, we are now wising up. But then, let's see, in a letter written 12 years later, in 1981, after he after the after he's come out of the 1970s the previous letter is him leaving the 60s this one is him describing what it was like leaving the 70s in poetry and he says this my doings touched a low low this year many things coming to an end many mistakes coming to an end too i hope one one of those periods of audit I made a new selected cult, selected poems and realized that for the last 10 years I've just piddled about everything except make a stand and confront the real thing in a concentrated way. Everything except concentrate and confront. What I've written in these years is all doodle somehow. 
I just never put myself behind it. I was always occupied mainly with something else or writing pieces for a book with somebody else. What a folly. Since 1970, I've written nothing of what I feel I should have and could have. I'd have given more time and thought to painting somebody else's house. Maybe life and folly become too interesting. Unproductive folly, that is. There are productive follies, after all. And I love this because one of the things I'm doing with this episode is that I'm going to start it, not with his earliest poetry, but with the poetry he wrote in the 1970s, which I think is not only his best poetry, but some of the best poetry that was ever written in the English language, beginning with Crow, uh, going on to Season Songs, Moortown Diary, Remains of Elmet, um, River, and I believe a few others. And then um, and then he also published a handful of smaller books, stranger books, that don't really stand up well, but there are poems in those that are immensely strong, and within an hour, hour and a half or two of those, maybe even two hours, of those poems is just astonishing. And so it's an education to me to see him say, that he has spent the 1970s piddling about. And I know, and I read the other one, the, the previous letter, because I know that there are some people who, like Hughes, who think that it's his early work that matters, the work from the late 50s and 60s. And he still doesn't, at some point, he doesn't care about that either. This is, seems to be what he does, and perhaps what all creative people do at some point. Um, you never really know what you have. And uh, either I think he's wrong in, in estimating his own poetry, or my, my own mind will change, or perhaps his mind would have changed by the end of his life. I don't know. And two more little pieces here. This one comes from 1988. And there, there are a lot of letters where he uh, criticizes the teaching of poetry and the teaching of English in Britain. And this is only one example of it, which is worth uh, putting in here. And it's worth saying that Hughes, uh, outside of, I think, te maybe teaching in a grammar school, um, maybe after the age of 25 or 30, he never taught at all and never in a university. And this is what he says in a letter in 1988. Um, in English, students are at sea, awash in the rubbish, incoherence, the jabber, and the sound waves, unless they have some internal sort of anchor of standards. Classroom grammar kits and teachers' prayers can't conjure the guardian angel duenna of English. For kids who have no other access to it but TV, their pals, and their parents, who only had TV and their pals, and some mysterious gulf where the natural eloquence of the illiterate age was lost. What kids need, I say, is a head full of songs that are not songs, but blocks of achieved and exemplary language. When they know by heart 15 pages of Robert Frost, a page of Swift's Modest Proposal, Animulia, etc., etc., 
They have the guardian angel installed behind the tongue. They have reefs for the life of language to build and breed around, a globe of precepts, and a great sheet anchor in the maelstrom linguistic turbulence. And now we are really at sea. And let's see if I can find something here. Yes, all right. This is a, um, a letter he wrote in 1978 about poetry. He says, T.S. Eliot once said to me, there's only one way a poet can develop his actual writing, apart from self-criticism and continual practice, and that is by reading other poetry aloud. And it doesn't matter whether he understands it or not, i.e. even if it's in another language. What matters, above all, is educating the ear. What matters, he says, is to connect your own voice with an infinite range of verbal cadences and sequences, and only endless actual experience of your ear can store all of that in your nervous system. The rest can be left to your life and your character, and that is one of the reasons why these episodes on Hughes work, I hope they do anyway, as a podcast rather than as a webpage. We need to hear the poetry. We need to hear poetry again. And this last letter comes from 1996, and he is uh, writing to someone who, I guess, sent him sort of a fan letter. And this is what Hughes has to say about narrative poetry, and listeners here will know of my affection for it. And I'm sure that my affection for Hughes has something to do with his ability to tell a tale, to write narrative poems. And this is what he says, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, he says, you are perfectly right. There is, as you say, a backbone of iambic and anapestic meter. The only law in dramatic narrative poems is a musical one since the whole point is to control pace, pitch, restraint and release, all forms of contrast, urgency and relaxation within a single broad headlong current of inevitability. Ideally, one tries to feel the thing as a whole, so the whole thing is somehow there behind each word. Then very simple words begin to communicate the charge and psychological complexity of the whole. It is Chaucer's secret. And when that begins to happen, one finds a curious thing. The piece begins to invent its own language. The words within any line or sentence become bonded in an odd way, as if they were all made out of bits of each other. The effect can be faked. Assonance, alliteration, rudimentary synagonad. But it never works when you fake it. It blocks the current rather than transmits it. Funny business, but very satisfying when it comes off, and even more satisfying when it finds a reader who understands it. Also, 
all the verbal and musical detail has to disappear in the main purpose, which is to tell the tale. And so, um, starting with Hughes's work in the 1970s, and then after that, going back to the beginning, and after that, continuing on to through uh, the rest of his career, I will let Hughes tell his tale. Between 1967 and 1973, Ted Hughes wrote uh, a series of poems, a sequence of poems, that he gathered under the title of Crow, or Crow Poems, or From the Life and Songs of the Crow. There was a larger Faber and Faber, and I assume a far Strauss edition in America, but there are also many uncollected poems. There were others that were included in pamphlets, but not included in book form, and all the rest. Um, and the American editions differed, it appears, from the British editions. So what I'm going to read from today comes from the collected poems of Ted Hughes, which I believe the editor says uh, brings together as many of the Crow poems as they could find, uh, which are quite a few. It's one of the stranger and more powerful and most violent books of poetry that I know of, but I think that Ted Hughes has found a way, certainly through the experience of his life, uh, to write about violence in a way that uh, does not demean it or glorify it. He also has found a way to create what we might think of as a new myth or a new collection of folklore in a way that I'm not aware of another poet doing in the last 50 or 100 years. And in part, that's because uh, many poets have simply not seen a need to do so. The, uh, the editor of the Collected Poems of Ted Hughes also mentions that when he gave readings from Crow, Ted Hughes usually provided a narrative framework for the poems which he contemplated publishing later as a separate prose work. And I assume by this note that means that that separate prose work never appeared. And in a way that's uh, for our benefit. The collection was uh, not unfinished in the way that Ezra Pound's cantos were, or many of the avant-garde long poems were that we encounter in the 20th century. They were complete in their way. They are small stories, and taken together, it is a collection of these small, strange, bizarre, violent, bloody stories uh, from the life of Crow. I don't really know of any other way to introduce these except to say that, except to express how, uh, how wide the collection is and uh, how like a, a myth we may have found a hundred or a few thousand years ago might appear, uh, with alternate versions appearing over in this place, uh, stragglers of other stories appearing over here, and at some point someone sees the need to collect all of them. 
I'm also sitting in a parking lot right now and it has been raining in Pittsburgh it feels like for the past uh, 40 days it might as well be so if you can hear the rain hopefully that doesn't distract from the poetry and maybe it might even add to the uh, to the mood of these poems I will just read the titles and read the poems I think there's about 11 of them that I wanted to share here and we'll just see how this goes the first one is King of Carrion. His palace is of skulls. His crown is the last splinters of the vessel of life. His throne is the scaffold of bones, the hanged thing's rack and final stretcher. His robe is the black of the last blood. His kingdom is empty. The empty world, from which the last cry flapped hugely, hopelessly away, into the blindness and dumbness and deafness of the gulf, returning shrunk silent to reign over silence. And this is Crow and the Birds. When the eagle soared clear through a dawn distilling of emerald, when the curlew trawled in sea-dusk through a chime of wine-glasses, when the swallow swooped through a woman's song in a cavern, and the swift flicked through the breath of a violet, when the owl sailed clear of tomorrow's conscience, and the sparrow preened himself of yesterday's promise, and the heron labored clear of the bessemer upglare, and the blue tit zipped clear of lace panties, and the woodpecker drummed clear of the rotovator and the rose farm, and the peewit tumbled clear of the laundromat, while the bullfinch plumped in the apple bud, and the goldfinch bulbed in the sun, and the wry neck crooked in the moon, and the dipper peered from the dewball. Crow spraddled head down in the beach garbage, guzzling a dropped ice cream. Many of the poems are actually funny as well. Crow's, this is called Crow's First Lesson. God tried to teach Crow how to talk. Love, said God, say love. Crow gaped and the white shark crashed into the sea and went rolling downwards, discovering its own depth. No, no, said God, say love, now try it. Love. Crow gaped, and a blue fly, a titsi, a mosquito, zoomed out and down to their sundry flesh pots. A final try, said God, now love. Crow convulsed, gaped, wretched, and man's bodiless, prodigious head bulbed out onto the earth with swiveling eyes, jabbering protest. And Crow wretched again before God could stop him. A woman's vulva dropped over man's neck and tightened. The two struggled together on the grass. God struggled to part them, cursed, wept. Crow flew guiltily off. And here comes that rain. I wonder if that will be 
audible on this recording. I'm sorry if the traffic is too. This is Crow Tyrannosaurus. Creation quaked voices. It was a cortege of mourning and lament. Crow could hear, and he looked around fearfully. The swift's body fled past, pulsating with insects, and their anguish, all it had eaten. The cat's body writhed, gagging, a tunnel of incoming death struggles, sorrow on sorrow. And the dog was a bulging filter bag of all the deaths that had gulped for the flesh and the bones. It could not digest their screeching finales. Its shapeless cry was a blort of all those voices. Even man, he was a walking abattoir of innocence, his brain incinerating their outcry. Crow thought, alas, alas, ought I to stop eating and try to become the light? But his eye saw a grub, and his head, trap sprung, stabbed, and he listened and he heard, weeping, Grubs, grubs, he stabbed, he stabbed, weeping, 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 he walked and stabbed. Thus came the eye's roundness, the ear's deafness. And this is a childish prank. Man's and woman's bodies lay without souls, dully gaping, foolishly staring, Inert on the flowers of Eden, God pondered. The problem was so great it dragged him asleep. Crow laughed. He bit the worm, God's only son, into two writhing halves. He stuffed into man the tail half with the wounded end hanging out. He stuffed the head head half first. He stuffed the head half head first into woman, and it crept in deeper and up to peer out through her eyes, calling its tail half to join up quickly, quickly, because, oh, it was painful. Man awoke being dragged across the grass. Woman awoke to see him coming. Neither knew what had happened. God went on sleeping. Crow went on laughing. This is Conjuring in Heaven. So finally there was nothing. It was put inside nothing. Nothing was added to it, and to prove it didn't exist, squashed flat as nothing with nothing. Chopped up with nothing, shaken into nothing, turned completely inside out, and scattered over nothing. So everybody saw that it was nothing, and that nothing more could be done with it. And so it was dropped. Prolonged applause in heaven. It hit the ground and broke open. There lay Crow, cataleptic. And this is called Crow Ego. Crow followed Ulysses till he turned as a worm, which Crow ate. Grappling with Hercules' two puff adders, 
be strangled in Era de Janeiro. The gold melted out of Hercules' ashes is an electrode in Crow's brain. Drinking Beowulf's blood and wrapped in his hide, Crow communes with poltergeists out of the old ponds. His wings are the stiff back of his only book, himself the only page of solid ink. So he gazes into the quag of the past, like a gypsy into the crystal of the future, like a leopard into a fat land. And this is Song Against the White Owl. The White Owl got its proof weapons, bequests of its victims, and it got those eyes that look beyond life from fluorescence of old corpses. It snatched its bones as it could from the burnings of blizzard. Death loaned it a belly, it wears a face it found in the sea. Twisting sinews of last breaths, it bent to these oddments together. With a ghostly needle of screech, it sewed a coat of the snow. From the knobbed and staring ice, wringing blood and fat. Oh, stare, owl stare, through your glacier wall at a fatal terrain of weeping snow and the leaf of a birch where I spoon your soul from a bowl, and my song steams. And this is called Crow's Courtship. Crow got impatient, knocking on God's door. Hurry up with my bride, he cried, for the years are passing. He could see old women going in, by the cartload, he could hear the furnace thundering and the flues of heaven, as God forged the body of his bride out of the carcasses of hags. Silence, shouted God, you are interrupting the great work. Only get away and be patient. Crow shuffled at the door, hummed a little. He stared down onto the hills of orchards, then stood sweating, transfixed by fantasy. Before he was aware he was battering on God's door, hurry up with my bride for the years are passing. The hag's bodies, though they were dead and red hot, screeched under the hammers of God, laminations of hag, millionfold in the blade of the bride's body. Get away, shouted God, you are ruining the work. Will you get away and be patient? Crow nodded his arms. His breast was a sweltering boil of the pain of impatience. He kicked open the door. God roared into tears. Crow stared wooden-eyed at the heap of ashes. The worst moment, God wept. The worst moment. And this is the very last one here, probably my favorite. Crow's song about God, which, if I remember this poem correctly, could also be Crow's poem about the 20th century. It says, 
Somebody is sitting under the gatepost of heaven, under the lintel, on which are written the words, Forbidden to the living, a knot of eyes, eye holes, lifeless, in the life shape, a ruddy old oak stump, aground in the ooze of some putrid estuary, snaggy with amputations, his fingernails broken and bitten, his hair vestigial and purposeless, his toenails useless and deformed, his blood filtering between in the coils of his body, like the leech of life in a slime and ochre pond, under the smoldering collapse of a town dump, his brain a hacked ache, a dull flint, his solar plexus crimped in his gut, hard, a plastic carnation in a gutter puddle outside the registry office, somebody sitting under the gatepost of heaven, head fallen forward, like the nipped head of somebody strung up to a lamppost with a cheese wire or an electric flex, or with his own blet, trousers round his ankles, face gutted with shadows, like a village gutted with bombs, weeping plasma, weeping whiskey, weeping egg white. He has been choked with raw steak that hangs black over his chin. Somebody, propped in the gateway of heaven, clinging to the tick of his watch, under a dream muddled as vomit, that he cannot vomit, he cannot wake up to vomit. He only lifts his head and lolls it back against the gatepost of heaven. Like a broken sunflower, eye sockets empty, stomachs laid open to the inspection of the stars, the operation unfinished, the doctors ran off, there was some other emergency, sweat cooling in his temples, hands hanging, what would be the use now of lifting them? They hang clumps of blood clot, varicose and useless as afterbirths. But God sees nothing of this person. His eye is occupied with his own terror as he mutters, My Savior is coming, he is coming, who does not fear death. He shares his skin with it. He gives it his cigarettes. He cuts up his food. He feeds it like a baby. He keeps it warm. He cherishes it. In the desolations of space, he dresses it up his best. He calls it his life. He is coming. Here are a handful of poems from Ted Hughes' 1976 book called Season Songs. But as usual with uh, Hughes's poetry, what we're actually dealing with is not the book that was first released in 1976, but with uh, the final text or the best text that the editor of his collected poems could come up with, kind of gathering all the material that Hughes uh brought together before 1976 and after in the different editions and different versions of the book that was called Season Songs. 
It's just interesting to note that uh, the book first started out uh, as a pamphlet for the 1968 Harvest Festival for performance by school children, and that uh, by the 80s or by the, the, the late 70s, um, Hughes could say that season songs began as, a, as children's poems, but that they grew up. So he kept adding to them and shuffling around the contents. And what I'll be reading from today are just my favorites from all of the poems that have been preserved that were in these various editions. The first is part five and part six from a poem called uh, Spring Nature Notes. And it says, this is part five. Spring bulges the hills. The bare trees creak and shift. Some buds have burst in tatters, like firework stubs. But winter's lean bullocks only pretend to eat the grass that will not come. Then they bound like lambs, they twist in the air, they bounce their half-tons of elastic. When the bale of hay breaks open, they gamble from heap to heap, finally stand happy, chewing their beards of last summer's dusky whiskers. And this is part six. With arms swinging, a tremendous skater on the flimsy ice of space, the earth leans into its curve. Thrilled to the core, some flies have waded out an inch onto my window to stand on the sky and try their buzz. And this is a poem called Ice Crest and Snowflake. Part one says, A polished glancing, a blue frost bright dawn, and the ox's hoof quagmire at the ice-cumbered trough has so far protected a primrose. And the wild mares in the moor hollow stand stupid with bliss among the first velvet-petaled full flowers. They are weeping for joy in a wind that blows through the flint of the ox's horn. And part two. The north wind brought you too late to the iron bar, rusted sodden in the red soil. The salmon weightless in the flag of depth, green as engine oil. A snowflake in April that touched, that registered, was felt. Solitary signal of a storm, too late to get in, past the iron bar's leaf, through the window of the salmon egg with its eager eye. And here is part one of a poem called Sheep. The sheep has stopped crying. All morning in her wire mesh compound on the lawn, she has been crying for her vanished lamb. Yesterday they came. Then her lamb could stand in a fashion and make some tiptoe cringing steps. 
Now he has disappeared. He was only half the proper size, and his cry was wrong. It was not a dry, little, hard bleat, a baby cry over a flat tongue. It was human. It was a despairing, human, smooth o, oh, like no lamb I ever heard. Its hind legs cowered in under its lumped spine. Its feeble hips leaned towards its shoulders for support. Its stubby white wool pyramid head on a tottery neck had sad and defeated eyes, pinched, pathetic, too small, and it cried all the time, oh, oh, staggering towards its alert, baffled, stamping, storming mother who feared our intentions. He was too weak to find her teats or to nuzzle up in under. He hadn't the gumption. He was fully occupied, just standing, then shuffling towards where she'd removed to. She knew he wasn't right. She couldn't make him out. Then his rough curl legs, so stoutly built, and hooved with real quality tips, just got in the way, like a loose bundle of firewood he was cursed to manage, too heavy for him, lending sometimes some support, but no strength, no real help. When we sat his mother on her tail, he mouthed her teat, slobbered a little, but after a minute lost aim and interest, his muzzle wandered. He was managing a difficulty much more urgent and important. By evening he could not stand. It was not that he could not thrive. He was born with everything but the will. That can be deformed, just like a limb. Death was more interesting to him. Life could not get his attention. So he died, with the yellow birth mucus still in his cardigan. He did not survive a warm summer night. Now his mother has started crying again. The wind is oceanic in the elms, and the blossom is all scent. And here are a few sections from a poem called Autumn Nature Notes. This is part two. It says, The sun finally tolerable. The sunflowers tired out like old gardeners. Cabbage white butterflies eddying in the still pool of what is left to them. The Budleia's last cones of lilac intoxicant crusted with peacock butterflies and red admirals. A raven orbiting elm high, lazily, two cronks to each circuit. Sky sprinkled with forked martens, swallows glittering their voices. Now a cooler push, rocking the mesh of soft-edged shadows. So we sit on the earth, which is warmed and sweetened and ripened by the furnace on which the door has just about closed. And this is part four. When the elm was full, 
when it heaved and all its tautnesses drummed like a full-sail ship. It was just how I felt. Waist-deep, I plowed through the lands. I leaned at horizons. I bore down on strange harbors. As the sea is a sail ship's route, so the globe was mine. When the swell lifted the crow from the elm top, both poles were my home. They rocked me and supplied me. But now the elm is still, all its frame bare. Its leaves are a carpet for the cabbages, and it stands engulfed in the peculiar golden light with which eternity's flash photographed the sudden cock pheasant. Engine whinnying, the fireball bird clatters up, shuddering full throttle, its three-tongued tail-tip writhing, and the elm stands astonished, wet with light, and I stand, dazzled to my bones, blinded. And this is part eight. Oceanic, windy dawn. Shapes grab at the window. Ravens go head over heels. The flood has scoured the sky. No going on deck today. I see through the submerged window that the quince tree, which yesterday still clung to a black leaf, has lost it. And here's a poem called The Seven Sorrows. The first sorrow of autumn is the slow goodbye of the garden who stands so long in the evening, a brown poppy head, the stalk of a lily, and still cannot go. The second sorrow is the empty feet of the pheasant who hangs from a hook with his brothers. The woodland of gold is folded in feathers with its head in a bag. And the third sorrow is the slow goodbye of the sun who has gathered the birds and who gathers the minutes of evening, the golden and holy ground of the picture. The fourth sorrow is the pond gone black, ruined and sunken the city of water, the beetle's palace, the catacombs of the dragonfly. And the fifth sorrow is the slow goodbye of the woodland that quietly breaks up its camp. One day it's gone. It has left only litter, firewood, tent poles. And the sixth sorrow is the fox's sorrow, the joy of the huntsman, the joy of the hounds, the hooves that pound till the earth closes her ear to the fox's prayer. And the seventh sorrow is the slow goodbye of the face with its wrinkles that looks through the window as the ear packs up like a tatty fairground that came for the children. And just two more here. This is a poem called A Crane Fly in September. And it says,
she is struggling through grass mesh, not flying her wide-winged, stiff, weightless basketwork of limbs rocking, like an antique wain, a top-heavy ceremonial cart across mountain summits, not planning, planing over water, dipping her tail, but blundering with long strides, long reachings, reelings, and ginger-glistening wings from collision to collision. Aimless in no particular direction, just exerting her last to escape out of the overwhelming of whatever it is, legs, grass, the garden, the county, the country, the world. Sometimes she rests long minutes in the grass forest, like a fairy tale hero. Only a marvel can help her. She cannot fathom the mystery of this forest in which, for instance, this giant watches, the giant who knows she cannot be helped in any way. Her jointed bamboo fuselage, her lobster shoulders, and her face like a pinhead dragon with its tender mustache, and the simple colorless church windows of her wings will come to an end in mid-search quite soon. Everything about her, every perfected vestment, is already superfluous. The monstrous excess of her legs and curly feet are a problem beyond her. The calculus of glucose and chitin inadequate to plot her through the infinities of the stems. The frayed apple leaves, the grunting raven, the defunct tractor sunk in nettles, wait with their multiplications like other galaxies. The sky's northward September procession, the vast, soft armistice, like an empire on the move, abandons her, tinily embattled with her cumbering limbs and cumbered brain. And lastly here, this is just part three from a poem called Two Horses. It says, The coulter slid effortless, the furrow's polished face, with a hiss coiling inside, a bow wave that settled beside the poisonous brown river as I stumbled deeper. Hour after hour, the tall, sweat-sleek buttocks, mill wheels heavily revolving, slackness to tautness, stretch and quiver, the vein-mapped watery quake weight and their slapping traces drawing me deeper into the muffled days and toil of their flames, their black tails slashing sideways, the occasional purring snort, the stubble's brassy whisper, the mineral raw earth smell, the town wind of sulfur, the knotted worms sheared by light, the everlasting war behind the shoulder, the old plowman still young, furrow by furrow, darkening toward summer.
1979, Ted Hughes published the book of poetry called Remains of Elmet. And this is the a small preface that he gave to the book. He writes that the Calder Valley, west of Halifax, was the last ditch of Elmet, the last British Celtic kingdom to fall to the Angles. For centuries it was considered a more or less uninhabitable wilderness, a notorious refuge for criminals, a hideout for refugees. Then, in the early 1800s, it became the cradle for the Industrial Revolution in textiles, and the Upper Calder became, quote, the hardest worked river in England, end quote. Throughout my lifetime, since 1930, I have watched the mills of the region and their attendant chapels die. Within the last 15 years, the end has come. They are now virtually dead, and the population of the valley and the hillsides, so rooted for so long, is changing rapidly. Faye Godwin set out to capture some impressions of this landscape at this moment, and her photographs moved me to write the accompanying poems. Uh, Hughes also gives a much longer introduction. Uh, in another uh, version of the book, but I think that gives enough of a preface for us to get by. Usually, as listeners would, will know, I'll spend a week or so reading one poem or so a day uh, from a book of poetry by one poet, and, then, and only at the end of it bring all of them together as one episode so you can hear them all at once, all together. But Remains of Elmet feels like uh, something that is worth reading the selections all at once. Not only are the, the poems themselves shorter, there are fewer lines, and the lines themselves are shorter, but more than many of his other books that are meant to be single stories almost, Remains of Elmet seems to be uh, one of the closest approximations he came to truly making one story out of a poem or out of a book of poems, a sequence of poems. So I wanted to read here seven poems from Remains of Elmet. The first is called The Trance of Light. The upturned face of this land, the mad singing in the hills, the prophetic mouth of the rain that fell asleep under migraine of headscarves and clatter of clog irons and looms and gutter water and clog irons and clog irons and biblical texts stretches awake out of revelations and returns to itself chapels chimneys vanish in the brightening and the hills walk out on the hills. The rain talks to its gods. The light, opening younger, fresher wings, holds this land up again like an offering, heavy with the dream of a people. The next poem is 
Hillstone was content. Hillstone was content to be cut, to be carded and fixed in its new place. It let itself be conscripted into mills, and it stayed in position defending this slavery against all. It forgot its wild roots, its earth song, in cement and the drum song of looms. And inside the mills, mankind with bodies that came and went stayed in position fixed, like the stones trembling in the song of the looms. And they too became four-cornered, stony, in their long, darkening, dwindling stand against the gorilla patience of the soft hill water. The next poem is called Remains of Elmet. Death struggle of the glacier enlarged the long gullet of Calder, down which its corpse vanished. Farms came stony masticators of generations that ate each other to nothing inside them. The sunk mill towns were cemeteries, digesting utterly all with whom they swelled. Now, coil behind coil, a wind-parched ache and absence, famished and staring, admits tourists to pick among crumbling, loose molars and empty sockets. And this is The Ancient Briton Lay Under His Rock. The Ancient Briton lay under his rock, under the oaks, the polished leaves of Sunday. He was happy no longer existing, happy being nursery school history, a few vague words, a stump of local folklore, a whirl in our ignorance. That valley needed him, dead in his cave mouth, bedded on bones of cave bear, saber-tooth. We needed him, the mighty hunter. We dug for him, we dug to be sure, stinging brows Sunday after Sunday, iron levers. We needed that waft from the cave, that dawn-dew chilling of emergence, the hunting grounds untouched all around us. Meanwhile, his pig-headed rock existed, a slab of time it surely did exist. Loyal to the day, it did not cease to exist. As we dug, it waddled and squirmed deeper. As we dug slowly a good half-ton, it escaped us, taking its treasure down, and lay beyond us, looking up at us, laboring in the prison of our eyes, our sun, our Sunday bells. And this poem is called Heptonstall. Captain Stahl, old man of the hills, propped out for air on his wet bench, lets his memories leak. 
He no, he no longer calls the time of day across to Studley, soured on that opposite ridge, and Studley has turned his back on the museum silence. He ignores Blackstone Edge, a huddle of wet stones and damp smokes, decrepit under sunsets. He no longer asks whether Peckett under the east wind is still living. He raises no hand towards Hathershelf. He knows the day has passed for reunion with ancestors. He knows Midgley will never return. The mantle clock ticks in the lonely parlor on the heights road where the face blue with arthritic stasis and heart good for nothing now lies deep in the chair back angled from the window skylines letting time moan its amnesia through the telegraph wires as the fragments of the broken circle of the hills drifts apart. And this poem is called Widdop. Where there was nothing, somebody put a frightened lake. Where there was nothing, stony shoulders broadened to support it. A wind from between the stars swam down to sniff at the trembling. Trees holding hands, eyes closed, acted at world. Some heath grass crept close in fear. Nothing else except when a gull blows through, a rip in the fabric, out of nothingness into nothingness. And the last poem here, called Cock Crows. I stood on a dark summit among dark summits, tidal dawn splitting heaven from earth, the oyster opening to taste gold. And I heard the cock crows kindling in the valley under the mist. They were sleepy, bubbling deep in the valley cauldron. Then one or two tossed clear like soft rockets and sank back again, dimming. Then soaring harder, brighter, higher, tearing the mist, bubble glistenings, flung up and bursting to light, brightenings the undercloud. The fire crests of the cocks, the sickle shouts, challenge against challenge, answer to answer, hooking higher, clambering up the sky as they melted, hanging, smoldering, from the night's fringes, till the whole valley brimmed with cockcrows, a magical soft mixture boiling over, spilling and sparkling into other valleys, lobbed up horseshoes of glow-swollen metal, from sheds and back gardens, hencoats, farms sinking back mistily, till the last spark died, the embers paled, and the sun climbed into its wet sack for the day's work, while the dark rims hardened over the smoke of towns from holes in earth.
Rain by Ted Hughes Rain, floods, frost, and after frost, rain. Dull roof drumming, wraith rain, pulsing across purple bare woods like light across heaved water, sleet in it. And the poor fields, miserable tents of their hedges, mist rain, off-world, hills, wallowing in and out of a gray or silvery dissolution. A farm gleaming, then all dull in the near drumming. At field corners, brown water backing and brimming in grass. Toads hop across rain-hammered roads. Every mutilated leaf there looks like a frog or a rained-out mouse. Cattle wait under blackened backs. We drive post holes. They half-fill with water before the post goes in. Mud water spurts as the iron bar slam burns the oak stake head dry. Cows, tamed on the waste, mudded like a rugby field, stand and watch, come very close for company in the rain that goes on and on and gets colder. They sniff the wire, sniff the tractor, watch. The hedges are straggles of gap, a few haws. Every half-ton cow sinks to the fetlock at every sliding stride. They are ruining their field, and they know it. They look out sideways from under their brows, which are their only shelter. The sunk, scrubby wood is a pulverized wreck. Rain riddles its holes to the drowned roots. A pheasant, looking black in his waterproofs, bends at his job in the stubble. The mid-afternoon dusk soaks into the soaked thickets. Nothing protects them. The fox corpses lie beaten to their bare bones, skidden beaten off, brains and bowels beaten out. Nothing but their blueprint bones last in the rain, sodden soft. Round their hay racks, calves stand in a shine of mud. The gateways are deep obstacles of mud. The calves look up through plastered forelocks without moving. Nowhere they can go is less uncomfortable. The brimming world and the pouring sky are the only places for them to be. Field fairs squeal over, sodden toward the sodden wood. A raven, cursing monotonously, goes over fast and vanishes in rain mist. Magpies shake themselves hopelessly, hop in the spatter, misery. Surviving green of ferns and brambles is tumbled like an abandoned scrapyard. The calves wait deep beneath their spines. Cows roar, then hang their noses to the mud. Snipe go over invisible in the dusk, with their squelching cries. Struggle by Ted Hughes 
We had been expecting her to calve, and there she was, just after dawn, down, private, behind bushed hedge cuttings, in a low, rough corner. The walk towards her was like a walk into danger. Caught by her first calf, the small-boned black-and-white heifer, having a bad time. She lifted her head. She reached for us with a wild, flinging look and flopped flat again. There was the calf, white-faced, lion-colored, enormous, trapped round the waist by his mother's purpled elastic, his heavy, long forelegs limply bent in a not-yet-inherited gallop, his head curving up and back, pushing for the udder which had not yet appeared, his nose scratched and reddened by an ill-placed clump of bitten-off rushes, his fur dried as if he had been half-born for hours, as he probably had. Then we heaved on his forelegs and on his neck, and half-born he mooed, protesting about everything, then bending him down between her legs and sliding a hand into the hot tunnel, trying to ease his sharp hip bones past her pelvis, then twisting him down so you expected his spine to slip its sockets, and one hauling his legs and one embracing his wet waist like pulling somebody anyhow from a bog, and one with hands easing his hips past the corners of his tunnel mother till something gave. The cow flung her head and lifted her upper hind leg with every heave, and something gave, almost a click, and his scrubbed, wet, enormous flanks came sliding out, colored ready for the light his incredibly long hind legs from the loose red flapping sack mouth, followed by a gush of colors, a mess of puddled tissues and jellies. He mooed feebly and lay like a Pieta Christ in the cold easterly daylight. We dragged him under his mother's nose, her stretched out exhausted head, so she could get to know him with lickings. They lay face to face like two mortally wounded duelists. We stood back, letting the strength flow towards them. We gave her a drink. We gave her hay. The calf started his convalescence from the grueling journey. All day he lay overpowered by limpness and weight. We poured his mother's milk into him, but he had not strength to swallow. He made a few clumsy throat gulps, then lay mastering just breathing. We took him inside. We tucked him up in front of a stove and tried to pour warm milk and whiskey down his throat and not into his lungs. But his eye just lay suffering the monstrous weight of his head, the impossible job of his marvelous huge limbs. He could not make it. He died called Struggle, son of patience.
February 17th by Ted Hughes. A lamb could not get born. Ice wind out of a downpour dish clouds sunrise. The mother lay on the mudded slope. Harried, she got up, and the blackish lump bobbed at her back end under her tail. After some hard galloping, some maneuvering, much flapping of the backward lump head of the lamb looking out, I caught her with a rope, laid her head uphill, and examined the lamb. A blood ball, swollen tight in its black felt, its mouth gap squashed crooked, tongue stuck out, black-purple, strangled by its mother. I felt inside, past the noose of mother flesh, into the slippery muscle tunnel, fingering for a hoof, right back to the porthole of the pelvis. But there was no hoof. He had stuck his head out too early, and his feet could not follow. He should have felt his way tiptoe, his toes tucked up under his nose, for a safe landing. So I kneeled, wrestling with her groans. No hand could squeeze past the lamb's neck into her interior to hook a knee. I roped that baby head and hauled till she cried out and tried to get up, and I saw it was useless. I went two miles for the injection and a razor, sliced the lamb's throat strings, levered with a knife between the vertebra, and brought the head off to stare at its mother, its pipes sitting in the mud with all earth for a body. Then pushed the next stump right back in, and as I pushed, she pushed. She pushed crying, and I pushed gasping. And the strength of the birth push and the push of my thumb against that wobbly vertebra were deadlock, a two-fro futility, till I forced a hand past and got a knee. Then, like pulling myself to the ceiling with one finger, hooked in a loop, timing my effort to her birth push groans, I pulled against the corpse that would not come till it came, and after it the long, sudden, yolk-yellow parcel of life, and a smoking slither of oils and soups and syrups, and the body lay born beside the hacked-off head. Birth of a Rainbow by Ted Hughes this morning, blue, vast clarity of March sky, but a blustery violence of air, and a soaked overnight new painted look to the world. The wind coming off the snowed moor in the south, razorish, heavy-bladed and head-cutting, off snow-powdered ridges. Flooded ruts shook, hoof-puddles flashed, a daisy mud-plastered unmixed its head from the mud. The black-and-white cow, on the highest crest of the rounded ridge, stood under the end of a rainbow. Head down, licking something, full in the painful wind that the pouring haze of the rainbow ignored. 
She was licking her gawky black calf, collapsed wet fresh from the womb, blinking his eyes in the low morning dazzling washed sun. Black, wet as a collie from a river, as she licked him, finding his smells, learning his particularity. A flag of bloody tissue hung from her back end, spreading and shining, pink-fleshed and raw. It flapped and coiled in the unsparing wind. She positioned herself, uneasy as we approached, nervous small footwork on the hoof-plowed, drowned sod of the ruined field. She made uneasy low noises, and her calf, too, with his staring whites, mooed the full clear calf note, pure as a woodwind, and tried to get up, tried to get his cantilever front legs in operation, lifted his shoulders, hoisted to his knees, then hoisted his back end, and lurched forward on his knees and crumpling ankles, sliding in the mud and collapsing, plastered. She went on licking him. She started eating the banner of thin raw flesh that spinnakered from her rear. We left her to it, blobbed antiseptic on the sodden blood dangle of his muddy birth cord, and left her, inspecting the new smell. The whole southwest was black as nightfall. Trailing squall smokes hung over the moor, leaning and whitening towards us. Then the world blurred and disappeared in forty-five degree hail and a gate-jerking blast. We got to cover, left the god, the calf, and his mother. In the introduction to his 1979 collection, Moortown Diary, Ted Hughes wrote that, in the early 1970s, my wife and I bought a small farm just north of the northern edge of Dartmoor, in what is generally known as North Devon, and farmed it in partnership with her father, Jack Orchard, to whom I have dedicated this book. And he later says that he only published the collection for his wife as a monument and a remembrance to her father. And I've already read three poems from Moortown Diary here, and the last one I want to read is about the death of Hugh's father-in-law, and it is called A Monument. Your burrowing, gasping struggle in the knee-deep mud of the cop's ditch, where you cleared with billhook and slasher a path for the wire, the boundary deterrent, that memorable downpour last-ditch hand-to-hand battle with the grip of the swamped blue clay to and fro, the wallowing weight of the wire roll, your raincoat in tatters, face fixed at full effort, and the to and fro lurching under posts and tools and pile-driver while the rain glittered all the sapling purple birches and clothing deadened to sheet lead, that appalling stubbornness of the plan 
among thorns will remain as a monument hidden under tightening undergrowth, deep under the roadside's car-glimpsed May beauty, to be discovered by some future owner as a wire tensed through impassable thicket, a rusting limit, where cattle, pushing unlikely, query for two minutes at most in their useful life. And that is where I remember you, skull-raked with thorns, sodden, tireless, hauling bedded feet free, floundering away to check alignments, returning, hammering the staple into the soaked stake oak, a careful tattoo, precise to the tenth of an inch, under December downpour, mid-afternoon, dark as twilight, using your life up. Here are three poems from Ted Hughes' 1983 book called River, and ten years later he offered this as an introduction to it, or as a, as a section of notes to introduce the poems. He says, It is not easy to separate the fascination of rivers from the fascination of fish. Making dams, waterfalls, water gardens, water courses is deeply absorbing play for most of us, but the results have to be a home for something. When the water is wild, inhabitants are even more important. Streams, rivers, ponds, lakes, all those things without fish communicate to me one of the ultimate horrors, the poisoning of the wells, death at the source of all that is meant by water. I spent my first eight years beside the West Yorkshire River, called the Calder, in which the only life was a teeming bankside population of brown rats. But the hillside streams and the canal fish and the canal held fish, including, in the canal, big but rare trout. These fish preoccupied me as a lifeline might. Later on, in South Yorkshire, the farm, which was for years my playground, was bounded on one side by the River Don, which drained the industrial belt between Sheffield and Doncaster, a river of such concentrated, steaming, foaming poisons that an accidental ducking was said to be fatal. My lifeline there was an old oxbow of the Don, full of fish and waterfowl. One day, in the early 1940s, I saw all the fish in this lake bobbing their mouths at the surface, the beginning of the end, as it turned out. That same day I noticed a strange, ruddy vein in the ditch water that drained from the farm buildings, two or three hundred yards away, and I registered a new smell. I traced the vein to a big stone shed, packed with sodden, dark-stained grass, reeking the new smell. It was the first silage. And that just gives a small indication of what these poems will be about. It's a wonderful book. 
uh, a wonderful collection, but I will only be reading three poems from it. The first is a four-part poem called Four March Watercolors. And the first part says this, Earth is just unsettling her first faint scents. My shadow soft-edged on drying pale sand, among baby nettles where flood water whirled and sowed it. The blue is a daze of bubbly fire, naked ushering and nursing of electricity with caressings of air. Earth, mud-stained, stands in sparkling beggary. Bergs of old snowdrifts still stubborn in shadows. The river acts fishless. It is fully occupied with its calisthenics, its twistings and self-wrestlings. The pool by the concrete buttress has just repaired its intricate engine, now revs it full bore underground under my footsole, tries to split the foundations, running in, testing and testing. Spring is over there, tits exciting the dour oak, cows soften their calls into the far, crumble-soft calling of ewes. The land hangs, tremulous. It pays full attention to each crow-caw, turning the full face to the entering, widening, flame-cored, burrowing havoc of a jet. Wild, stumpy daffodils shiver under the shock wave. In part two, nearly a warmth edging this wind. A skylark, solitary, glittering high out over the buoyant upboil. A spice particle from the tumbled out, humpbacked, bursting bales of river. Spring just hesitates. She can't quite say what she feels yet. She's numb and pale, but she's here and looking at everything, first morning of real convalescence. The river is hard at it, tries and tries to wash and revive a bedraggle of dirty bones, primitive radical engine of earth's removal, a solution of all dead ends and all-out evacuation to the sea, all debts of wings and fronds, of eyes, nectar, roots, hearts, returning, cancelled, to solvency, back to the sea's big rethink. While the field full of novelty lambs suns and sprawls mid-morning, high-headed, happy, supposing here is a goodness that will stay forever. A blue tit de-rusts its ratchet. We trees, we tall ones, sunning, somewhat mutilated, inured by one more winter, to this muddy, heedless earth, and to our scaly, provisional bodies. Relax, enjoy the fraternity of survival, even a hope of new leaf. And part three, the river concentrates its work. Its wheels churn, foam at the pool tail blazes tawny, thrashing tight-blown flames bleeding the valley older. An inch of snow whitened last night, and the world slipped back under. This morning, 
touch precarious snow, fledged all complexities of trees and perfected fields. By noon the earths absorbed it. A ewe, steep-spined, is lowering herself to the power coils of the river's bulge to replenish her udder, and a big-thumbed buzzard swirls to a stall over the woodtop opposite, mewing, now settling heavy with domestic purpose. Clouds lift anchors. The world tries its weight. All these branches are jammed solid with confidences. A market of gossip. A spider has found me. And part four. The river epic rehearses itself, embellishes afresh and afresh each detail. Baroque superabundance, earth mouth brimming. But the snow melt is an invisible restraint. If there are salmon under it at all, they are in coma. They are stones lodged among stones, sealed as fossils under the grained pressure. I look down onto the pour of melted chocolate. They look up at a guttering lamp through a sandstorm boil of silt that scratches their lidless eyes, fumes from their gill petals. They have to toil, trapped face workers, in their holes of position under the mountain of water. Up here, a lightness breathes. A morning sleep lightness, a glow on the closed eyelids, or seen through the wet cracks of eyelashes, a crammed and jostly pushing of crow-tended, buzzard-adjusted germination. Now only hour after hour of the sweating, speechless labor of trees, and the long ropes of light, hauling the river's cargo to the oldest commerce. And I've said before that the, the one influence American poets can't, still can't get away from or learn past is Walt Whitman. Uh, it seems British poets, for British poets, that is William Wordsworth. And I think only Ted Hughes has learned past Wordsworth. Um, I don't even know what you learn from a poem like that. I don't even know how, in the middle of it, I was thinking I should uh, take this coming winter to try and write poems like that. But um, <laughs> I don't even know what that would mean. Uh, I don't know how you even would try. Uh, it would have to be your own version of it. You couldn't try to imitate something like this. This is just... Uh, this is just incredible. And I think, uh, at least for me, the the power in it is that he can include lines like uh, saying that the river is going back to the sea's big rethink. Being able to insert a phrase like rethink is just wonderful. Um, the second poem is much smaller. This is called After Moonless Midnight. It says... I waited, deepening, and the fish listened for me. 
They watched my each move through their magical skins. In the stillness their eyes waited, furious with gold brightness, their gills moved, and in their thick sides the power waited, and in their torpedo concentration their mouth aimed intent, their savagery waited, and their explosion. They waited for me. The whole river listened to me and blind and visibly watched me and held me deeper with its blind, invisible hands. We've got him, it whispered. We've got him. And here is a poem called October Salmon. October salmon. It says, He's lying in poor water, a yard or so depth of poor safety, maybe only two feet under the no protection of an out-leaning small oak, half under a tangle of brambles. After his two thousand miles he rests, breathing in that lap of easy current in his graveyard pool, about six pounds weight, four years old at most, and hardly a winter at sea, but already a veteran, already a death-patched hero. So quickly it's over, so briefly he roamed the gallery of marvels. Such sweet months, so richly embroidered into earth's beauty dress, her life robe, now worn out with her tirelessness, her insatiable quest hangs in the flow a frayed scarf, an autumnal pod of his flower, the mere hull of his prime, shrunk at shoulder and flank. With the sea-going aurora borealis of his April power, the primrose and violet of that first upfling in the estuary, ripened to muddy dregs, the river reclaiming his sea metals. In the October light he hangs there, patched with leper cloths. Death has already dressed him in her clownish regimentals, her badges and decorations, mapping the completion of his service, his face a ghoul mask, a dinosaur of senility, and his whole body a fungoid anemone of canker. Can the cares of water ease him? The flow will not let up for a minute. What a change from that covenant of polar light to this shroud in a gutter. What a death in life to be his own specter, his living body become death's puppet, dulled by death in her crude paints and drapes. He haunts his own staring vigil, and suffers the subjection and the dumbness and the humiliation of the role. And that is how it is. That is what is going on there, under the scrubby oak tree, hour after hour. That is what the splendor of the sea has come down to, and the eye ravenous of joy, K. 
king of infinite liberty and the flashing expanse, the bloom of sea life. On the surge ride of energy, weightless, body simply an armature of energy in that earliest sea freedom, the savage amazement of life, the salt mouthful of actual existence, with strength like light. Yet this was always with him, this was inscribed in his egg. This chamber of horrors is also home. He was probably hatched in this very pool. And this was the only mother he ever had, this uneasy channel of minnows under the mill wall with bicycle wheels, car tires, bottles, and sunk sheets of corrugated iron. People walking their dogs trail their evening shadows across him. If boys see him, they will try to kill him. All this, too, is stitched into the torn richness, the epic poise that holds him so steady in his wounds, so loyal to his doom, so patient in the machinery of heaven. Beginning with his book called Crow in 1970, uh, Ted Hughes published an awful lot of poetry in the 1970s. I would even guess that the 70s were probably his most prolific period. And uh, he seems, as his biographers and uh, scholars have pointed out, um, after the suicide of Sylvia Plath, he seems to have found uh, a certain way of his own of dealing with the huge amounts of poetry that he was able to write. On the one hand, he would publish large major collections with uh, Faber and Faber in the United Kingdom. And on other years, he would publish smaller collections, usually with smaller presses. And I think uh, by the end of it, uh, one of those small presses was run by his sister so that these were an outlet for him. These were a way of saying, these are out of my system. But there may have only been 100 or 200, sometimes I think maybe even only 50 copies of uh, a short collection of maybe uh, 10 or 15 poems. And this was his way of controlling his output, but also, as I think I had mentioned many times, if we're talking about creativity here, of just of getting rid of something, of putting it, uh, putting a movie out, putting, uh, finishing a painting by, you know, uh, putting it in an exhibition or just putting out a collection of poetry so that you can move on to the next thing. But what, what this meant in the 70s for Hughes is that he not only went on a run of uh, miraculous books that I don't think anyone has equaled. Um, I'll say in the final huge uh, collection of readings that I've done of Hughes that I'll be doing in the next month or so when I finally come to the end of his career that I don't think 
I can't think of anyone uh, writing in English after Shakespeare who has done what Ted Hughes was able to do. And I don't think I'm alone in this uh, assumption. I can think at least of the, the critic Michael Hoffman, who is very hard to please, said basically the same thing. Um, I would put him above Milton and Wordsworth uh, without question. And I think that the core of what he was able to do happened in the 1970s with Crow in 1970, uh, season songs, the remains of Elmet, Moortown Diary, and then a book uh, that came out in the 80s, in the early 80s, called River. Um, in those books is, is poetry that I have never encountered anywhere else and that I am stunned to read aloud here, and I feel lucky to be able to read it all aloud here. But what he also did in the 70s was uh, come out with a lot of shorter collections and books that he really wasn't happy with by the end of the 70s. I think it's in the early 80s, if you look at his letters, he says that he has spent uh, the last 10 years, last 10 to 15 years, uh, ever since he finished Crow, uh, basically he's, I believe he says, wasting his time. He says something to that effect. Uh, early in the late 60s and early 70s, he was uh, in, he was associated or collaborated with the, the famous director, theater director and film director, Peter Brook, who seems in America at least to be most well known because I remember seeing uh, VHS copies of this in the library when I was younger. Uh, he did a film version of the Mahabharata, of the great Indian epic. Um, he also did uh, a stage version of King Lear that he wanted Hughes to sort of rewrite and adapt from Shakespeare, and I think Hughes sort of shrank back from that challenge and saw that it was something he would rather not do. But he also... Uh, uh, hired Hughes, you might say, or collaborated with him in the early, late 60s, early 70s. They went to Iran and uh, put on a strange sort of modernist drama there. I don't know what you would call it. Um, and it seems to have been an, an exhilarating experience. Uh, just as I was coming down here, I was trying to imagine what I could compare it to. And it would sort of be like, imagine... Uh, you are uh, a fairly well-known poet in the United States in the, in the early 90s. And Martin Scorsese tells you, uh, I'm heading over to India, or wherever it was that they filmed this movie, uh, to film a movie about the Dalai Lama, and I'd like you to write the script. Um, I don't, I think that would be too good of an uh, invitation to pass up and Ted Hughes was not able to pass up the invitation to go to Iran and, uh, and do theater there, uh, like in the cliffs. Um, I mean, it was just, it sounds like it was an amazing time. But as he says in his letters and as he reflects on it later, he sees that the experience with Brooke of working in the theater, of giving so much of his time, it meant that he wasn't able to devote that time, real concentrated time, to the poetry that he believed was his real calling. 
the poetry that uh, was the core of his uh, talent as a writer. And so you have books that, uh, that came out of those experiences in the theater and his attempts otherwise to try and work mythology into his poetry, to work his interests in the occult or in shamanism or alchemy or a lot of other things into poetry. And they find their way into books like uh, that have titles like Prometheus on his crag, another book called Godete, another book called Orts, a book called Cave Birds, a book called Adam and the Sacred Nine, and finally uh, a book called Earthnum and another one called A Primer of Birds. And I don't think it's... Um, I don't think that there's really any uh, reputation that these collections have other than as, not necessarily as blind alleys, but just as unsuccessful attempts to get at what he was doing, to get at what he was able to do best. And to my mind, and I think to others too, uh, the run of Crow season songs, Remains of Elmet, Moortown Diary, and River are what he was doing. But if you read his letters, and if you read the biography uh, written, by, written about him by Jonathan Bate that came out a few years ago, you also see something very surprising. Uh, when I say that those collections are my favorites and that they reach a peak that I am not aware of in poetry and English for 500 years, uh, 400 years, um, what I'm talking about is what is collected in the huge collected poetry of Ted Hughes that came out, I think, in 2003 or so. But the original versions of these books um, were in flux. They were always in flux. So that the version of Crow that is collected in the huge thousand-page collected poetry of Ted Hughes, the version, uh, the version of Crow is something that is cobbled together from everything from all the editions of Crow that he published, adding and taking taking up uh, taking away poems here and there over the years, the versions of the version of Remains of Elmet that he first published also included uh, photographs. Um, it was a collaboration with a photographer. It was only later, I think, in the early '90s, that the photographs were taken out and a bunch of other poems were added in. Uh, Moortown Diary, I believe, is the same thing where the original version that came out in the late 70s was sort of an elegy for his wife's father that uh, helped Hughes in farming work. And it wasn't until, again, I think the early 90s, when uh, the book was recollected and sort of reordered and other poems were added in. And I think the, the, that is also the case with uh, River as well, which oddly enough, if I'm remembering this right, uh, was a book that was published by or or financed by uh, the Shell Oil Company, and they wanted to show that they were an environmentally conscious company, and they hired someone to do the photographs, and Hughes had these, these wonderful nature poems that you can go back and listen to that I read some time ago. 
And again, it wasn't until later when uh, a major edition of that collection was published, uh, not by the Shell Oil Company and without the photos, and you see the whole thing, so that you can understand why Hughes might think in the early 1980s, um, everything I've done over the past 10, 15 years has been scattered. Um, it's only really after the passage of time when he seems to have grasped what, uh, what these collections were that he uh, found a way of giving them uh, a greater shape. Uh, now that is almost 11 minutes of an introduction to a reading of about 10 or 11 poems from those smaller collections. Uh, Hughes is somebody who wanted to work in sequences, wanted to work in narratives and stories, even if sometimes his modernist or alchemical or mystical bent took him to places that uh, aren't immediately uh, tangible to readers. And so what I read here from uh, those sort of more scattered collections, again, I'll give the titles uh, when I start reading from them, um, I won't give any sense of what those books are about, but it was strange in choosing uh, my favorites from these smaller collections that if you read them together, if you read the best ones together, the best ones uh, in my opinion, and maybe other people would find this too if they came up with their own best of, if you read all of those together, they are still poems written uh, roughly around during the same decade. And I think they do sort of cohere. They are a way of seeing what he was doing uh, in an immensely powerful way. And a lot of them seem to be uh, picking up the power that he had uh, brought together in Crow, talking about uh, violence, human violence, violence, what violence does to nature in the human body and then bringing some of the other poems, bring up uh, simply the uh, more naturalistic, more diary-like nature poems. And uh, so I'll just start reading from them here, and uh, you can see how they sound all together. I don't think it is a shabby bit picking here and there from these poems. This is one poem, uh, poem number seven, from Prometheus on his crag from 1973. It says, Prometheus, arrested halfway from heaven and slung between heaven and earth, swallowed what he had stolen. Chains hungered. These chains were roots reaching from frozen earth. They sank searching into his flesh, interrogating the bones, and the sun, plundered and furious, planted its vulture. So the sun bloomed as it drank him, earth purpled its crocus. So he flowered, flowers of a numb bliss, a forlorn freedom, groanings of the sun, sighs of the earth, gathered by withering men. Now, for my money, that is a wonderful poem, but if you, uh, that is poem number seven, I think, in a, in a sequence that 
goes on, I think, at least into 30 poems. And so it would be hard to uh, see how much that one gleams if you are uh, reading 30 other poems and that one is in the middle of it. Here is, and I don't know if I can call this a favorite poem. This comes from the collection Godete from 1977. Um, this seems to be the pinnacle of what he was able to do uh, talking about violence to the human body and also uh, the sort of mythological cannibalism that happens in uh, many uh, many of the ancient myths and the Roman myths that he liked so much, the myths from Ovid. Uh, and this is a, just a remarkable utterance, even if uh, it is a terrible thing that is being described. It simply says this, I skin the skin, take the eye from the eye, extract the entrails from the entrails. I scrape the flesh from the flesh, pluck the heart from the heart, drain away the blood from the blood, boil the bones till nothing is left but the bones. I pour away the sludge of brains, leaving simply the brains, soak it all in the crushed out oil of the life, eat, eat. Now it's very easy for a poet like Hughes to to become a parody of himself, and and I think it's true that he filled many of his pages with poetry like that that is long-winded, or cliche-ridden, or just um, worn out and tired. This is uh, three, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. This is. 15 lines and then the spaces in between the small stanzas uh, that is just about perfect if dark is what you're looking for. This is an uncollected poem from 1977-1978. This is a longer one called New Foal. It says, Yesterday he was nowhere to be found in the skies or under the skies. Suddenly he's here, a warm heap of ashes and embers, fondled by small draughts. A star dived from outer space, flared and burned out in the straw. Now something is stirring in the smolder. We call it a foal. Still stunned, he has no idea where he is. His eyes, dew dusky, explore gloom walls and a glare door space. Is this the world? It puzzles him. It is a great numbness. He pulls himself together, getting used to the weight of things, and to that tall horse nudging him, and to the straw. He rests from the first blank shock of light, the empty days of the questions. What has happened? What am I? His ears keep on asking gingerly, but his legs are impatient, recovering from so long being nothing. They are restless with ideas. They start to try a few out, 
angling this way and that, feeling for leg leverage, learning fast, and suddenly he's up, stretching. A giant hand strokes him from nose to heel, perfecting his outline as he tightens the knot of himself. Now he comes teetering over the weird earth. His nose, downy and magnetic, draws him, incredulous, towards his mother. And the world is warm and careful and gentle. Touch by touch, everything fits him together. Soon he'll be almost a horse. He wants only to be horse, pretending each day more and more horse till he's perfect horse. Then unearthly horse will surge through him weightless, a spinning of flame under sudden gusts. It will coil his eyeball and his heel in a single terror, like the awe between lightning and thunderclap, and curve his neck like a sea monster emerging among foam, and fling the new moons through his stormy banner, and the full moons and the dark moons. So that after the poems that seem like they belong with Crow, you find that one where they seem to belong with Moortown Diary and the other ones. Here are three, two, two small poems from his 1978 book called Orts. And if I remember correctly, these feel like they belong with uh, Remains of Element. This is the first one in the collection. The fallen oak sleeps under the bog, assuming new centuries of black strength. It is nursing a hope of being disinterred in some good age and lovingly carved into a hard body for the goddess of oaks. It does not care that the sun will split it with light. The acorn in its nightmare of pigs has no less of a hope. The leaf skeleton lifted away by autumn, inconsequential as the wings of a crane fly, has a hope. And then you fast forward all the way to poem number 44. Again, this one goes into the 50s, I think. It's hard to pick out the gems when there are that many of them. This is number 44. He did all that he thought he wanted to do. He had what people called luck and opportunities which he took. He had what was called love. So much, such a weight of it, the axle broke on the card of everything that was not love. In the end, he found he had been learning a language in school. Now he comes to the land where it is spoken, and he understands nothing, and he is dumb. That one might be worth reading again. And just imagine, uh, a 50 poem sequence where all 50 poems are not that great. Just take this one out and make up your own story for it. It's a, a magnificent piece of what Hughes was able to do uh, making new myths.
Listen to this. He did all that he thought he wanted to do. He had what people called luck and opportunities which he took. He had what was called love. So much such a weight of it, the axle broke on the cart of everything that was not love. In the end, he found he had been learning a language in school. Now he comes to the land where it is spoken, and he understands nothing, and he is dumb. Here we are. And now a few poems from his 1978 book called Cave Birds. This is called The Executioner. The executioner fills up sun, moon, stars. He fills them up. With his hemlock, they darken. He fills up the evening and the morning. They darken. He fills up the sea. He comes in under the blind, filled-up heaven, across the lightless, filled-up face of water. He fills up the rivers, he fills up the roads like tentacles. He fills up the streams and the paths like veins. The tap drips darkness, darkness. Sticks to the soles of your feet, he fills up the mirror. He fills up the cup. He fills up your thoughts to the brim of your eyes. You just see he is filling the eyes of your friends. And now lifting your hand, you touch at your eyes which he has completely filled up. You touch him. You have no idea what has happened to what is no longer yours. It feels like the world before your eyes ever opened. And this is another one from Orts called A Green Mother. It says, why are you afraid? In the house of the dead are many cradles. The earth is a busy hive of heavens. This is one lottery that cannot be lost. Here is the heaven of the tree. Angels will come to collect you. And here are the heavens of the flowers. These are an ever-living bliss, a pulsing, a bliss in sleep. And here is the heaven of the worm a forgiving God. Little of you will be rejected, which the angels of the flowers will gladly collect. And here is the heaven of insects. From all these you may climb to the heavens of the birds, the heavens of the beasts and of the fish. These are only some heavens, not all within your choice. There are also the heavens of your persuasion, your candle prayers have congealed an angel, a star, a city of religions, like a city of hotels, a holiday city. There, too, I am your guide. In none of these is the aftertaste of death pronounced poor. This earth is the sweetness of all the heavens. It is heaven's mother. The grave is her breast, her nipple in its dark aura. Her milk is unending life. 
you shall see how tenderly she wipes her child's face clean of the bitumen of blood and the smoke of tears. And this is called Bride and Groom Lie Hidden for Three Days. She gives him his eyes. She found them among some rubble, among some beetles. He gives her her skin. He just seemed to pull it down out of the air and lay it over her. She weeps with fearfulness and astonishment. She has found his hands for him and fitted them freshly at the wrists. They are amazed at themselves. They go feeling all over her. He has assembled her spine. He cleaned each piece carefully and sets them in perfect order. A superhuman puzzle, but he is inspired. She leans back, twisting this way and that, using it and laughing, incredulous. Now she has brought his feet, she is connecting them, so that his whole body lights up, and he has fashioned her new hips, with all fittings complete and with newly wound coils, all shiningly oiled. He is polishing every part. He himself can hardly believe it. They keep taking each other over to the sun. They find they can easily, they find they can easily, to test each new thing at each new step. And now she smooths over him the plates of his skull so that the joints are invisible. And now he connects her throat, her breasts, and the pit of her stomach with a single wire. She gives him his teeth, tying their roots to the center pin of his body. He sets the little circlets on her fingertips she stitches his body here and there with steely purple ink. He oils the delicate cogs of her mouth. She inlays with deep-cut scrolls the nape of his neck. He sinks into place the inside of her thighs. So, gasping with joy, with cries of wonderment, like two gods of mud sprawling in the dirt, but with infinite care, they bring each other to perfection. And when I was reviewing what, what poems to read here tonight, I had forgotten this one. And uh, just above the title, I wrote a happy poem, exclamation, exclamation point, a happy love poem, exclamation point, a happy love creation poem from Ted Hughes, if you can believe that, exclamation point. And here is another wonderful myth poem that would be hard to pluck out from an entire collection. This is from Adam and the Sacred Nine from 1979. And this is a poem called, And the Phoenix Has Come. And the phoenix has come. Its voice is the blade of the desert, a fighting of light. Its voice dangles glittering in the soft valley of dew. Its voice flies flaming and dripping flame, 
slowly across the dusty sky, its voice burns in a rich heap of mountains that seem to melt. Its feathers shake from the eye, its ashes smoke from the breath, flesh trembles, the altar of its death and its birth, where it descends, where it offers itself up, and naked the newborn laughs in the blaze. Now I'm sure since antiquity about a million people have written poems about the phoenix rising, uh, but not one like that. Here, two more here. And these are from, let's see, these are from his book called Earth Numb from 1979. This poem is called Life is Trying to Be Life. Life is trying to be life. Death also is trying to be life. Death is in the sperm like the ancient mariner with his horrible tale. Death mews in the blankets. Is it a kitten? It plays with dolls but cannot get interested. It stares at the window light and cannot make it out. It wears baby clothes and is patient. It learns to talk, watching the other's mouths. It laughs and shouts and listens to itself, numbly. It stares at people's faces and sees their skin like a strange moon and stares at the grass in its position just as yesterday, and stares at its fingers and hears, look at that child. Death is a changeling tortured by daisy chains and Sunday bells. It is dragged about like a broken doll by the little girls playing at mothers and funerals. Death only wants to be life. It cannot quite manage. Weeping, it is weeping to be life, as for a mother it cannot remember. Death and death and death, it whispers with eyes closed, trying to feel life. Like the shout in joy, like the glare in lightning that empties the lonely oak. And that is the death in the antlers of the Irish elk. It is the death and the cave wife's needle of bone. Yet it still is not death, or in the shark's fang, which is a monument of its lament on a headland of life. Might as well write above that a happy death poem by Ted Hughes. And this will be the very last one I read. This is also from Earth Numb. And um, just to say here, uh, it, it, uh, it must have been quite a time being, uh, being such a prolific poet as Ted Hughes. Uh, many poets out there could scoff at that idea and wonder uh, how bad it could possibly be. But for someone who could shake these things out as as many times as he did, um, it must have been hard to have any perspective about it. It must have been hard to, uh, if you're able to write this well, 
uh, so often, or if you're just able to write at all so often, um, it must have been hard to uh, to know whether it was uh, a genuine, you know, exhalation of your creativity and your spirit, or if it is just uh, an itch that needed to be scratched. And so um, I sort of have uh, some affection for this dilemma, and it's been fun plucking 11 poems from what probably amounts to 200 or so pages of poetry and seeing how well they stand up and how well they run and seep and uh, blend into one another. And uh, we'll just end with this poem, which is called A God, and this is getting back into the darker stuff. Can't help that. This is called A God. Pain was pulled down over his eyes like a fool's hat. They pressed electrodes of pain through the parietals. He was helpless as a lamb which cannot be born, whose head hangs under its mother's anus. Pain was stabbed through his palm at the crutch of the M, made of iron from the earth's core. From that pain he hung, as if he were being weighed. The cleverness of his fingers availed him, as the bullock's hooves and the awful bin avail the severed head hanging from its galvanized hook. Pain was hooked through his foot. From that pain, too, he hung as on display. His patience, his patience had meaning only for him like the sanguine, upside-down grin of a hanging half-pig. There, hanging, he accepted the pain beneath his ribs, because he could no more escape it than the poulterer's hanging hair, hidden behind eyes growing concave, can escape what has replaced its belly. He could not understand what had happened, or what he had become. Now even that poem um, takes up the violence, the violence of human beings to themselves, the violence of human beings to animals, uh, the violence of religion and mythology, the violence of ritual, uh, and also just, um, and he makes it his own with the electrodes, that is what Hughes does, modernizing a lot of the myths and then just takes the animal details from his earliest poetry and from his most powerful stuff that he wrote around this time. From Moortown Diary, he brings in the torturer's aspect, I think that's is evident in some of his earliest poetry from his first book. Uh, and that is all right here. And there is the autobiographical as well, uh, he could not understand what had happened or what he had become, you assume. And it's also, uh, you don't know, is this a, uh, a modern poem that you're supposed to take to be about Jesus or Prometheus or any human being who is living with suffering. Um, all of this is right here in one astonishing page of poetry. 
So here are a handful of poems from Ted Hughes' first two books, The Hawk in the Rain, which came out in 1957, and Looper Call, which came out in 1960. This will give a sense of how he got to the poetry of his that I've been reading lately and the ones that I most admire uh, that I've already posted here, such as uh, the, the poems from Crow from 1970, Season Songs from 1976, The Remains of Elmet and Moortown Diary from 1979, and finally River from 1983. And these uh, seven or so or more poems give a hint as to how he got there. You can still hear him trying to be more, uh, you might say, formal in some of these, and in others just a bit of a, uh, a mouthful, uh, learning to use uh, the natural music that he has with words. And in others, he just sounds as he, as he did, as if he emerged mature almost immediately. There are also two other poems that come from these books, uh, Six Young Men and an uncollected poem from the same time called My Uncle's Wound that I recorded earlier, and I will just attach those, attach that reading to the end of this episode so that uh, all of these contemporaneous poems are together. So first, the title poem and the first poem from his first collection, The Hawk in the Rain. It says, I drown in the drumming plowland. I drag up heel after heel from the swallowing of the earth's mouth, from clay that clutches my each step to the ankle, with the habit of the dogged grave. But the hawk, effortlessly at height, hangs his still eye. His wings hold all creation in a weightless quiet, steady as a hallucination in the streaming air. While banging wind kills these stubborn hedges, thumbs my eyes, throws my breath, tackles my heart, and rain hacks my head to the bone, the hawk hangs, the diamond point of will that pole stars the sea drowner's endurance. And I, bloodily grabbed, dazed, last moment counting morsel of the earth's mouth, strain to enter the master fulcrum of violence, where the hawk hangs still. That maybe in his own time meets the weather, coming the wrong way, suffers the air, hurled upside down, fall from his eye, the ponderous shires crash on him, the horizon trap him, the round angelic eye smashed, mix his heart's blood with the mire of the land. And the next poem is called The Horses. I climbed through woods in the hour before dawn dark. Evil air, a frost-making stillness, not a leaf, not a bird, a world cast in frost. I came out above the wood, where my breath left torturous statues and the iron light. But the valleys were draining the darkness, till the mooring, blackening dregs of the brightening gray, halved the sky ahead 
and I saw the horses, huge in the dense gray, ten together, megalith still. They breathed, making no move, with draped manes and tilted hind hooves, making no sound. I passed. Not one snorted or jerked its head. Gray, silent fragments of a gray, silent world. I listened in the emptiness on the moor ridge. The curlew's tear turned its edge on the silence. Slowly detail leafed up from the darkness. The sun orange, red, red erupted silently, and splitting to its core and flung cloud, shook the gulf open, showed blue, and the big planets hanging. I turned, stumbling in the fever of a dream, down towards the dark woods, from the kindling tops, and came to the horses. There still they stood, but now, steaming and glistening under the flow of light, their draped stone manes, their tilted hind hooves, stirring under a thaw, while all around them the frost showed its fires. But still they made no sound, not one snorted or stamped, their hung heads patient as the horizons, high over valleys in the red leveling rays. In a din of crowded streets, going among the years, the faces, may I still meet my memory in so lonely a place, between the streams and red clouds, hearing the curlews, hearing the horizons endure. And this is a poem called Wind. This house has been far out at sea all night. The woods crashing through darkness, the booming hills, winds stampeding the fields under the window, floundering black astride and blinding wet till day rose. Then under an orange sky, the hills had new places and wind wielded blade light luminous black and emerald, flexing like the lens of a mad eye. At noon I scaled along the house side, as far as the coal house door. Once I looked up, through the brunt wind that dented the balls of my eyes, the tent of the hills drummed and strained its guy rope, the fields quivering, the skyline a grimace, at any second to bang and vanish with a flap. The wind flung a magpie away, and a black back gull bent like an iron bar, slowly. The house rang like some fine green goblet in the note that any second would shatter it. Now deep in chairs in front of the great fire, we grip our hearts and cannot entertain book, thought, or each other. We watch the fire blazing and feel the roots of the house move, but sit on, seeing the window tremble to come in, hearing the stones cry out under the horizons. And this is a poem called 
invitation to the dance, especially for me, this conjures up the brutal physical violence of uh, the Crow poems. This is invitation to the dance. The condemned prisoner stirred, but could not stir. Cold had shackled the blood prints of the knout. The light of his death's dawn put the dark out. He lay, his lips numb to the frozen floor. He dreamed some other prisoner was dragged out. Nightmare of command in the dawn, and a shot. The bestial gaoler's boot was at his ear. Upon his sinews torturers had grown strong. The inquisitor old against a tongue that could not, being torn out, plead even for death. All bones were shattered, the whole body unstrung. Horses, plunging apart towards north and south, tore his heart up by the shrieking root. He was flung to the blowfly and the dog's fang. Pitched onto his mouth in a black ditch, all spring he heard the lovers rustle and sigh. The sun stank. Rats worked at him secretly. Rot and maggot stripped him stitch by stitch. Yet still this dream engaged his vanity, that could he get upright, he would dance and cry, shame on every shy or idle wretch. And the last poem I would have read from The Hawk in the Rain is Six Young Men, and that is the one that I will append to the end of this episode, since I read it earlier. I'm reminded of Seamus Heaney saying in the interviews that I was reading a while back that uh, because he first read Ted Hughes in The Hawk in the Rain and Lupercal, and because that was such an intense experience of his young life, coming upon such powerful poetry and coming upon it uh, not from someone long dead, but from someone not much older than him and who came from, or at least had an awareness of the kind of rural life that Heaney had in Ireland and was having it himself in England. Um, I remember him saying that, uh, and this is a good example of how art isn't just about aesthetic judgment, it is somehow about when you read it, how intense the memory is, and all the rest of it. Uh, Heaney said that even though he admired and even saw that uh, Ted Hughes's later poetry was probably better than these first two collections, because of the way and the time and the circumstances in which he first read this at the start of his own writing, start of his own poetry, he was most attached to this early sound of Ted Hughes, and I can see why. Um, here now are let's see one, two, four poems from his 1960 book Looper Call. The first one is May Day in Holderness. It says, "This evening, motherly summer moves in the pond. I look down into the decomposition of leaves." 
the furnace door whirling with larvae. From Hull's sunset smudge, Humber is melting eastward my south skyline. A loaded single vein, it drains the effort of the inert north. Sheffield's oars, bog pools, drags of toadstools, tributary graves, dunghills, kitchens, hospitals. The unkillable North Sea swallows it all. Insects, drunken, drop out of the air. Birth soils, the sea salts, scoured me, cortex and intestine, to receive these remains. As the incinerator, as the sun, as the spider, I had a whole world in my hands. Flower-like, I loved nothing. Dead and unborn are in God comfortable. What a length of gut is growing and breathing. This mute eater biting through the mind's nursery floor with eel and hyena and vulture, with creepy crawly and the root, with the sea worm entering its birthright. The stars make pietas. The owl announces its sanity. The crow sleeps glutted, and the stoat begins. There are eye-guarded eggs in these hedgerows, hot hay nests under the roots in burrows. Couples at their pursuits are laughing in the lanes. The North Sea lies soundless. Beneath it smolder the wars, the heartbeats bomb bayonet. Mother, mother! cries the pierced helmet, cordite oozings of Gallipoli, curded to the beastings, broached my palate, the expressionless gaze of the leopard, the coils of the sleeping anaconda, the night-long frenzy of shrews. I just wonder, uh, knowing that T.S. Eliot was the editor at Faber and Faber back then, what he made of Ted Hughes, um, if he found, if he saw in him someone who even surpassed himself. <laughs> uh, I think T.S. Eliot's letters by now are up to volume nine, and it's only in the early 40s, so he might have to wait a while to find out. This next poem is called View of a Pig, and that also reminds me, actually, that uh, for those of you out there who don't have any of Ted Hughes' poetry and who only come across the 1,200-page collected poetry, um, most of these poems are about animals and about nature, and I see that uh, there is a smaller book, about 200 pages, that is just called A Ted Hughes Bestiary that uh, is probably worth looking at. I'd like to get a copy of it myself and just see what all of his animal and nature poems sound like put together. This is called View of a Pig. The pig lay on a barrow, dead. It weighed, they said, as much as three men. Its eyes closed, pink-white eyelashes. Its trotters stuck straight out. Such weight and thick pink bulk Set in death seemed not just dead, 
It was less than lifeless, further off. It was like a sack of wheat. I thumped it without feeling remorse. One feels guilty insulting the dead, walking on graves, but this pig did not seem able to accuse. It was too dead, just so much a poundage of lard and pork. Its last dignity had entirely gone. It was not a figure of fun. Too dead now to pity, to remember its life, din, stronghold of earthly pleasure as it had been, seemed a false effort and off the point. Too deadly factual. Its weight oppressed me. How could it be moved? And the trouble of cutting it up. The gash in its throat was shocking, but not pathetic. Once I ran at a fair in the noise to catch a greased piglet that was faster and nimbler than a cat. Its squeal was the rending of metal. Pigs must have hot blood. They feel like ovens. Their bite is worse than a horse's. They chop a half-moon clean out. They eat cinders, dead cats. Distinctions and admirations, such as this one, was long finished with. I stared at it a long time. They were going to scald it, scald it and scour it, scour it, like a doorstep. And this is part one of a poem called An Otter. And it says this, Underwater eyes, an eel's oil of water body, neither fish nor beast is the otter, four-legged yet water-gifted, to outfish fish, with webbed feet and long ruddering tail, and a round head like an old tomcat. Brings the legend of himself from before wars or burials, in spite of hounds and vermin poles, does not take root like the badger, wanders, cries, gallops along land he no longer belongs to, re-enters the water by melting of neither water nor land, seeking some world lost when first he dived, that he cannot come at since, takes his changed body into the holes of lakes, as if blind, cleaves the stream's push till he licks the pebbles of the source, from sea to sea crosses in three nights like a king in hiding, crying to the old shape of the starlit land, over sunken farms where the bats go round without answer, till light and birdsong come, walloping up roads with the milk wagon. And the last poem here from Looper Call, this is called November. The month of the drowned dog. After long rain, the land was sodden as the bed of an ancient lake, treed with iron and birdless. In the sunk lane, the ditch, a seep silent all summer, made brown foam with a big voice. That and my boots on the lane's scrubbed stones 
in the gullied leaves, against the hills hanging silence. Mist silvering the droplets and the bare thorns, slower than the change of daylight. In a let of the ditch, a tramp was bundled to sleep, face tucked down into beard, drawn in under his hair like a hedgehog's. I took him for dead, but his stillness separated from the death of the rotting grass in the ground. A wind chilled, and a fresh comfort tightened through him, each hand stuffed deeper into the other's sleeve. His ankles, bound with sacking and hairy band, rubbed each other, resettling. The wind hardened, a puff shook a glittering from the thorns, and again the rain's dragging gray columns smudged the farms. In a moment the fields were jumping and smoking, the thorns quivered, riddled with the glassy verticals. I stayed on, under the welding cold, watching the tramp's face glisten and the drops on his coat flash and darken. I thought, what strong trust slept in him as the trickling furrows slept and the thorn roots in their grip on darkness and the buried stones taking the weight of winter, the hill where the hard, where the hair crouched with clenched teeth. Rain plastered the land till it was shining like hammered lead, and I ran, and in the rushing wood, shuddered by a black oak, leaned. The keeper's gibbet had owls and hawks by the neck, weasels, a gang of cats, crows, some stiff, weightless, twirled like dry bark bits in the drilling rain. Some still had their shape, had their pride with it, hung chins on chests, patient to outweigh these worst days that beat their crowns bare and dripped from their feet. Since I will be getting back into reading the poetry of Ted Hughes here, I thought a good way to do that would be with two poems about war from early in his career. From his first book comes this poem, Six Young Men. The celluloid of a photograph holds them well. Six young men, familiar to their friends. Four decades that have faded and ochre tinged this photograph have not wrinkled the faces or the hands. Though their cocked hats are not now fashionable, their shoes shine. One imparts an intimate smile. One chews a grass. One lowers his eyes, bashful. One is ridiculous with cocky pride. Six months after this picture, they were all dead. All are trimmed for a Sunday jaunt. I know that bill-buried bank, that thick tree, that black wall, which are there yet and not changed. 
From where these sit, you hear the water of seven streams fall to the roar in the bottom, and through all the leafy valley a rumoring of air go. Pictured here, their expressions listen yet, and still that valley has not changed its sound, though their faces are four decades under the ground. This one was shot in an attack, and lay calling in the wire, then this one, his best friend, went out to bring him in and was shot too, and this one, the very moment he was warned from potting at tin cans in no man's land, fell back dead with his rifle sights shot away. The rest, nobody knows what they came to, but come to the worst they must have done, and held it closer than their hope. All were killed. Here see a man's photograph, the locket of a smile, turned overnight into the hospital of his mangled last agony and hours. See bundled in it his mightier than a man dead bulk and weight. And on this one place which keeps him alive in his Sunday best, see fall war's worst thinkable flash and rending unto his smile forty years rotting into soil. That man's not more alive whom you confront and shake by the hand, see hail, hear, speak loud, than any of these six celluloid smiles are, nor prehistoric or fabulous beast more dead, no thought so vivid as their smoking blood. To regard this photograph might well dement such contradictory permanent horrors here smile from the single exposure and shoulder out one's own body from its instant and heat. And the second poem was not collected into a book at all during Hughes's lifetime, but was published on its own uh, in a magazine. This is called My Uncle's Wound. Not much remains of my uncle's Normandy. The stones, but he'd signed none. The grass is in its fortieth generation, and the skylines have moved subtly, pampered curves of a slut risen in the world. Under the March washing wind, new wheat tugged and glistened. We walked up a lane he had last marched up sick, with the black stench of dead men and the beckoning of shell-burst and mile-off machine-gun. He monologued the march he had come, sleepwalking in the khaki familiar column, singing, but inwardly one silent eye, seeing for the first time the crazed eyes of men, once blown to pieces, then reassembled hurriedly and healed with a cigarette. The river of stretchers, bandages, crutches, and blood, oozing down from the trembling ridges where the twentieth century broke surface, and the machine guns transformed mathematics. I was squeezing myself into the ditches, reading my final moment off grass blades or the untroubled procedure of beetles, or else floating gingerly at head height, 
my neck bare to the chill of an express track, along which the vistas exchanged lightnings. The fields, as they changed, were still finding dead men, richer, dark patches in the pale watercolor wheat. I scavenged for a memory, crumbs of rust or of bone, and one dead man's shadow of fertility. But I found nothing, and maybe they weren't dead men, and when I looked at my uncle, to see in a glass the landscape as it had been, he had turned to a wandering bit of a dream. It was a cold-eyed country, up and earning daily bread in a thoroughly wakened world. He seemed certain only of the low wood bristling the ridge, and the first mist of bud, towards which we were walking and towards which long ago he had started to run, sketchily with some tentative others, when a bullet picked him up by the hip bone and laid him in a shell hole. The sun, all the remainder of a day, stared down into his wound. The war had gone away and left him alone with a deliberate sniper, who now signed his brow with blood. And as that shrank him flat below the crater wall, bullet by bullet dug down after him and signed him again. I wanted the exact spot, the earth scar of that hole, through which he bloodily crept into wealth and fatness. I would have put in my wallet one of the green-flagged thread-root wheat grains of his resurrection. He'd lost touch. It was all somewhere down there, somewhere or other in time, somewhere in him. As the world's mass kept those skylines so quiet, he became quiet with his memories. But I know memory as I know the blood-crammed, dried-out, rabbit-colored crumbs of soil that thicken this earth, or the blinding of the sun, or the green wheat blades sucking the crumbled soil into their glistenings. So Ted Hughes' first two books of poetry came rather quickly, The Hawk in the Rain in 1957 and The Looper Call in 1960. But uh, his next major collection, he did some stuff with small presses in between, but his next major collection didn't appear until 1967, and that is called uh, Wodwo, and for a lot of biographical reasons, including the suicide of... Sylvia Plath and the fallout uh, from that um, is one of the reasons why you imagine that, that there would have to be a gap in, uh, in anyone's life, let alone one's uh, creative life. In a letter from the time, from 1967, just before the book came out, Ted Hughes writes, I collected the salvageable parts from what I'd produced between 1960 and 1966, and it will come out in May. 
about fifty poems and five stories and a radio play arranged in a short narrative, in a sort of narrative. The pieces on their own are okay, several of my better things, but read as a connected work and interpreted properly, it's a rather sickly book. But it's the end of a phase, and not the phase that I trust. Um, which is kind of strange. Usually you would expect a poet to, or anybody really, to be cheerleading whatever the current thing is that they've done. But if you've been nursing it for seven years, I imagine the, the impulse more is to just get it out of the way. And that seems to be what Hughes was doing. Um, so I'm going to read... Uh, about six poems from the book. I don't think it's uh, as much of a... Um, I don't think it's much of an end-of-a-phase kind of book as he does, or a sickly book. If you go to the collected poems, you'll find that uh, the only things collected there are the poems that he mentions, the 50 or so poems. Uh, the, the story and the radio play are not included, and that's probably... Uh, for the best as well. But I think it's some really good work, although what it's leading to is Crow and uh, all the major work of the 1970s that he does. Not just the major work, but the sort of, uh, you might say, mistakes of the 1970s as well. But there's a huge outpouring in the 70s, and um, it begins with Crow, which was already on his mind at this time. I'll read something else about the book Wodwo in a moment, but wanted to get a few of the poems in first. Let's see. The first is called A Wind Flashes the Grass. A wind flashes the grass, leaves pour blackly across. We cling to the earth with glistening eyes, pierced afresh by the tree's cry. And the incomprehensible cry from the boughs in the wind sets us listening for below words, meanings that will not part from the rock. The trees thunder in unison on a gloomy afternoon, and the plowman grows anxious, his tractor becomes terrible as his memory litters downwind and the shadow of his bones tosses darkly on the air. The trees suddenly storm to a stop and a hush against the sky where the field ends. They crowd there shuddering and wary like horses bewildered by lightning. The stirring of their twigs against the dark traveling sky is the oracle of the earth. They too are afraid, they too are momentary, streams, rivers of shadow. And the next poem is called Revelé. No, the serpent was not one of God's ordinary creatures. Where did he creep from? this legless land swimmer with a purpose. Adam and lovely Eve 
Deep in the first dream, each the everlasting holy one of the other, woke with cries of pain. Each clutched a throbbing wound, a sudden cruel bite. The serpent's head, small and still, smiled under the lilies. Behind him his coils had crushed all Eden's orchards. And out beyond Eden, the black, thickening river of his body glittered in giant loops around the desert mountains and away over the ashes of the future. And the next one is, is uh, from a poem called Out, and I think it is, this is part one, from a poem called Out. And I think this is one of the only times that Ted Hughes writes about the First World War uh, from his, from an autobiographical perspective. There is a time where, where uh, I believe he is imagining or actually describing how he was walking with his uncle in over the battlefields of France. But here he is imagining himself or remembering uh, being a little boy and dealing with his father, who was also a veteran of the First World War, and um, the difficulties of that. Uh, it says, My father sat in his chair recovering from the four-year mastication by gunfire and mud, body buffeted wordless, estranged by long soaking in the colors of mutilation. His outer perforations were valiantly healed, but he and the hearth fire, its blood flicker on biscuit bowl and piano and table leg, moved into strong and stronger possession of minute after minute as the clock's tiny cog labored and on the thread of his listening dragged him bodily from under the mortised four-year strata of dead Englishmen he belonged with. He felt his limbs clearing with every slight gingerish movement, while I, small and four, lay on the carpet as his luckless double, his memories buried immovable anchor, among jawbones and blown-off boots, tree stumps, shell cases, and craters, under rain that goes on drumming its rods and thickening its kingdom, which the sun has abandoned, and where nobody can ever again move from shelter. And in Jonathan Bates' biography of Hughes, uh, he has this to say about the book. Uh, it was published in May of 1967. And uh, it mentions uh, where the title comes from, and I'll do my best here with, old, uh, with Middle English. If you have your copy of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight with the Middle English on the left and the uh, translation on the right, uh, the line sounds something like this. Some a while with wormeth he weareth, and with wolves, Alice, some while with woad woes, that woned in 
Canareth. This is Sir Gawain encountering an array of monsters as he crosses, quote, the wilderness of Wiral in his quest for the Green Knight, in the poem that Hughes had especially admired when, when taking the medieval paper at Cambridge. The Wodwo was a hairy wild man of the woods, and in the title poem, written in early 1961, and printed as the last poem in the collection, he noses around, quote, turning leaves over, following a faint stain on the air to the river's edge, end quote, like an adult version of one of the creatures in Ted's children's tales, or really like uh, anyone in his poems, I guess mostly his later poems. I'm thinking of uh, uh, Remains of Elmet, uh, anyone following a faint stain on the air to the river's edge, or from the poems in the book called River. Uh, he says in another letter to somebody that uh, the poem was a, quote, transit camp on the way to the next big thing, which, as I said, was Crow. And that reminds me again of Seamus Heaney's wonderful remark. Uh, you are either, uh, a poet either gets going sort of stays the course, or you start again. And for Hughes, at least, especially if, if you consider that long seven-year gap, for someone as prolific as him to have to wait that long for another big book of poems to come out, um, you can see why he would have thought that this was just a transit camp, something on the way to something much larger. He also says that there was an awful lot of himself in it, which is probably why it was unsatisfactory. And for me anyway, if, and if anyone else has read Jonathan Bates' biography of Hughes, that sort of corrects what seems to be uh, Jonathan Bates' thesis in the book, which is that from the time of Sylvia Plath's suicide uh, until 1997 or 98, when Ted Hughes' book about his relationship with Sylvia Plath called Birthday Letters came out, um, the assumption is, the scholarly assumption of Jonathan Bate anyway, is that Hughes was kind of on hold or uh, in the grip or in the vice or uh, weighed down by not being able to write directly and autobiographically about Plath. And there are a lot of reasons why he decided not to do that. But um, for my money and in my mind, and even though Hughes does say something like that when, um, when Birthday Letters is about to come out, is about to appear, he says that he feels freed for the first time in 30 years or so. Um, again, uh, his reaction to Wodwo as being uh, something of a, uh, uh, on a way station uh, towards something else, towards something better. Uh, or thinking uh, that this new book, Birthday Letters, in 1998, is a sudden freeing for him, um, I would, I guess, be wary of what someone thinks in the moment when the sudden burst of energy has finally uh, reached book form, because uh, I think Hughes did a wonderful job in the books of the 70s and the early 80s dealing with himself and autobiography 
in an indirect way, a more indirect way, and that is what made the poems great. And I guess you can get a sense even from Crow, the next big book, that he is dealing with uh, autobiography in a way that is different from what he's doing here in Wodwo. And just reading the poems aloud now, you can sort of see what he means, that the book isn't quite as successful as the others. Just three more here, actually four more. Um, this is a poem called The Warriors of the North. Bringing their frozen swords, their salt-bleached eyes, their salt-bleached hair, the snow's stupefied anvils in rows, bringing their envy, the slow ships feelered southward, snails over the steep sheen of the water globe, thawed at the red and black disgorging of abbeys, the bountiful cleft casks, the fluttered bowels of the women of dead burghers, and the elaborate, patient gold of the gales. To no end but this timely expenditure of themselves, a cash-down beforehand revenge with extra for the grueling relapse and prolongure of their blood into the iron arteries of Calvin. That's a nice imagining of a Viking raid. This poem is called Heptonstall. Black village of gravestones, skull of an idiot whose dreams die back where they were born, skull of a sheep whose meat melts under its own rafters, only the flies leave it, skull of a bird the great geographies, drained to sutures of cracked window sills. Life tries, death tries, the stone tries, only the rain never tires. And that sounds like something, again, from uh, uh, Remains of Elmet. And you can see, uh, comparing these to the other collections I've read to, or I've read from of his, that this does, it doesn't feel like a whole, it doesn't feel like, uh, not necessarily a narrative, but it doesn't feel like something that quite holds together the way his others do. But it's nice to see how he got where he was going after this. This is a poem called You Drive in a Circle. You drive in a circle, slowly a hundred miles through the powerful rain. Your clothes are toweled with sweat, and the car glass sweats, and there is a smell of damp dog. Rain sog is rotting your shoes to paper. Over old hairy moors, a dark arctic depth, cresting under rain, where the road topples, plunging with its crazed rigging, like a rackety iron tanker, into a lunge of spray emerges again through hard rendings of water, drowned eyes at the melting windshield. Out above the swamped moor wallows, 
the mist gulfs of no thinking. Down in there are the sheep, rooted like sponges, chewing and digesting and undeterred. What could they lose, however utterly they drowned? Already sodden as they are with the world, like fossils. And what is not the world is God, a starry comforter of good blood. Where are you heading? Everything is already here. Your hardest look cannot anchor out among these rocks. Your coming days cannot anchor among these torn clouds that cannot anchor. Your destination waits where you left it. I don't know for me, just reading those and imagining seven years and the reason for the seven years, um, it feels like a huge uh, struggle. It feels like uh, someone who doesn't quite know what they want to say or where they want to go. And if you're talking about uh, the suicide of your wife and figuring out how to uh, take care of your children and uh, the reputation of your wife uh, trying to keep that safe and sane and also trying to help uh, her family as well, dealing with her death. Uh, it, it's almost um, someone who wonders whether the poetry is even necessary or worthwhile anymore. At least that's what it seems to me. Um, but I think, especially with Crow, if you go to the recordings I made from that book, uh, there is a sense of having found a way to deal with these things in poetry uh, in a way that uh, is much different than the poems in World Woe. There's one more poem here, and this is one that is uncollected. It was published between 1967 and 1970. And this is another look at, uh, at World War I. And this is part one uh, from a poem called Scapegoats and Rabies. Uh, a typical Ted Hughes title at this point in his life, I suppose. Scapegoat, Scapegoats and Rabies, part one. Soldiers are marching, singing, down the lane. They get their abandon from the fixed eyes of girls, from their own armed anonymity, and from having finally paid up all life might demand. They get their heroic loom from the statue stare of old women, from the trembling chins of old men, from the napes and bow legs of toddlers, from the absolute steel of their automatic rifles, and the lizard spread of their own fingers, and from their bird stride. They get their facelessness from the blank, deep meadows and the muddling streams and the hills' eyeless outlook, the babble of gravestones, the moldering of letters and citations on rubbish dumps. They get the drumming engine of their boots from their hearts, from their eyeless, earless hearts, 
their brainless hearts, and their bravery from the dead millions of ghosts marching in their boots, cumbering their bodies, staring from under their brows, concentrating toward a repeat performance, and their hopelessness from the millions of the future, marching in their boots, blindfold and riddled, rotten heads on their singing shoulders, the blown-off right hand swinging to the stride of the stumps scorched and blown-off legs helpless in the terrible engine of the boots. The soldiers go singing down the deep lane, wraiths into the bombardment of afternoon sunlight, whelmed under the flashing onslaught of the barley, strangled in the drift of honeysuckle. Their bodiless voices rally on the slope and again in the far woods, and then settle like dust under the ancient burden of the hill. So here are a handful of poems from Ted Hughes from about 1986 to 1997. This is everything uh, that I haven't read yet that leads up to his 1998 book about Sylvia Plath called Birthday Letters, and I'm going to save that for an episode next week. Uh, and you can sort of see, uh, I guess, uh, Perhaps this is Ted Hughes' uh, Wordsworth phase, who is supposed to have sort of dipped a bit as he got older. It's also true that uh, from the late 80s to, I believe, 1990 or 91, uh, Hughes spent an immense amount of time, time that he seems to have regretted later, uh, working on his book about Shakespeare and um, not necessarily focusing too much on the poetry. But there are still some good bits here, and here are, just to start, here are two poems from his 1986 book called Flowers and Insects, and the first one is called, get there, Two Tortoise Shell Butterflies. This is what it says. Mid-May, after May frosts that killed the camellias, after May snow, after a winter worst in human history, a freeze killing the hundred-year-old bay tree, and the ten-year-old bay tree, suddenly a warm limpness, a blue heaven just veiled with the sweatings of earth, and with the sweatings out of winter, feverish under the piled mayware of the lawn now two tortoiseshell butterflies, finding themselves alive. She drunk with the earth sweat, and he drunk with her, float in eddies over the daisy's quilt. She prefers dandelions, settling to nod her long spring tongue down into the nestling pleats, into the flower's thick-folded throat, 
her wings high-folded. He, settling behind her among plain glistenings of the new grass, edging and twitching to nearly touch, pulsing and convulsing, wings wide open to tight-closed to flat open, quivering to keep her so near, almost reaching to stroke her abdomen with his antenna. Then she's up and away, and he, startlingly swallow-like, overtaking, crowding her, heading her off any escape. She turns that to her purpose and veers down onto another dandelion, attaching her weightless yacht to its crest, wobbles to stronger hold, to deeper, sweeter penetration, her wings tight shut above her, a sealed book, absorbed in itself. She ignores him, where he edges to left and to right, flitting his wings open, titillating her fur with his perfumed draughts, spasming his patterns, his tropical pheasant appeals of folk art, venturing closer, grass blade by grass blade, trembling with inhibition, nearly touching. And again she's away, dithering blackly. He swoops on an elastic to settle accurately under her tail again as she clamps to this time a daisy. She's been chosen, courtship has claimed her, and he's been conscripted to what's required of the splitting bud of the talented robin that performs piercings out of the still bare ash, the whole air just like him, just breathing, over the still turned inward earth, the first caresses of the wedding coming, the earth opening its petals, the whole sky opening a flower of unfathomably patterned pollen. And this next one is called Sunstruck Foxglove. And it ends with the same word as that last poem. And I believe the biographies say that this is uh, a poem about one of Hughes's mistresses in the uh, mid-80s or so. And it says, As you bend to touch the gypsy girl who waits for you in the hedge, her loose dress falls open. Midsummer ditch sickness, flushed, freckled with earth fever, swollen lips parted, her eyes closing, a lolling armful and so young, hot among the insane spiders. You glimpse the reptile under speckle of her sunburned breasts, and your head swims, you close your eyes. Can the foxes talk? Your head throbs. Remember the bird's tolling echo, the dripping fern roots and the butterfly touches that woke you. Remember your mother's long, dark dugs, her silky body a soft oven for loaves of pollen. And for some reason, this next poem was published uh, in a magazine or newspaper in Hughes's lifetime, but was never put into a book. Uh, this has always been one of the funnier ones that he wrote. 
uh, at least for me, it's called Devon Riviera. Under the silk nighty of the August evening, the prepared resort, a glowing liner, leans toward happiness, unmoving. The whole vessel throbs with dewy longing. Gray, dazed heads promenading their pots, their holiday shirts, their shrunk, freckled forearms, with hobbling wives who look more like their mothers, smell rejuvenation in the ebb. And large, thickened ex-footballers, with their high-tension scowls, trailing headache wives and swollen kids towards another compulsory steak and chips, sniff the beery skirts of liberation. Mauve-dusted, balanced pairs of spinsters, walking to interest and appetite, venture their compass-delicate stomachs among guffaws and squeals and gaping perfumes. Decent couples, rigid with loneliness, expose themselves intermittently, with buttoned faces, to the furnace interiors of fun halls. And easy girls from the north, their half-closed eyes fixed on the wine-dark sea haze towards Jersey, loll back in cliff alcoves above the town outfall, while waiters from Pisa gnaw their necks. They see gulls dangling stainless cries and colliding for tossed-up fish guts above my chugging boat that nudges happily home through the purple, hauling the rich robe of sewage. That's as close as Hughes ever got to a uh, protest poem about the super-rich, I suppose or just the things the middle class uh, demands. Here are two poems from his 1989 book called Wolf Watching. And the first one is called For the Duration. I felt a strange fear when the war talk, like a creeping barrage, approached you. Jig and jag, I'd fitted much of it together. Our treasure, your DCM, again and again carrying in the wounded, collapsing with exhaustion. And as you collapsed, a shell burst, just in front of you, lifting you upright for the last somnambulist yards, before you fell under your load into the trench. The shell, some other time, that buried itself between your feet as you walked and thoughtfully failed to go off. The shrapnel hole over your heart, how it spun you. The blue scar of the bullet at your ankle from a traversing machine gun that tripped you as you cleared the parapet. Meanwhile, the horrors were doled out. Everybody had his appalling tale. But what alarmed me most was your silence, your refusal to tell, I had to hear from others what you survived and what you did. Maybe you didn't want to frighten me. Now it's too late. Now I'd ask you shamelessly, but then I felt ashamed. 
What was my shame? Why, why couldn't I have borne to hear you telling what you underwent? Why was your war so much more unbearable than anyone else's? As if nobody else knew how to remember. After some uncle's virtuoso tale of survival that made me marvel and laugh, I looked at your face, your cigarette like a dial finger, and my mind stopped with numbness. Your day silence was the coma, out of which your night dreams rose, shouting. I could hear you from my bedroom, the whole hopelessness still going on, no man's land still crying and burning inside our house, and you climbing again out of the trench and wading back into the glare, as if you might still not manage to reach us and carry us to safety. And that is, I believe, the last poem that Hughes wrote about World War I and the last poem he wrote about his father, his father's reticence about talking about World War I. And this is a poem called Take What You Want But Pay For It. Part 1. Weary of the cries, God spoke to the soul of Adam, saying, Give me your body. And he took Adam's body and nailed it to a stake, saying, This great beast shall destroy your peace no more. Then God fortified with buttresses his house's walls, and so devised a prison for the contorted body of the beast. Outside, the soul, in a shroud, glorified the majesty of the defensive structure towards which it fled from the enclosing and unappeasable cry of the surrounding bush. Once inside the locked sanctuary, and seeing its own body nailed down to silence, harmless, and no longer thirsting, it wept astounded at the finished and cold beauty of its own torment, and the stony peace cupped it like hands, and breathed into it grace. No longer life, simply grace, whispering, this is grace. Part two. Then the soul of Adam gasped as if in airlessness, and there came in from his hands and feet, up through his bowels and in through his shoulders and down, from all the sutures of his skull, a single cry braiding together all the uncried cries his body could no longer cry, a single flagellant thong with which he drove his ghostly being shuddering back into the body, and in that sudden inrush of renewal, the nailed feet and the hands tore free of the nails, and he fell from the empty gibbet to earth, and tried to rise and raised his blood-anointed head, and tried to cry but could not move. Only raised the blood mask, and its effort in his broken attempt to get up. Then God withdrew, horrified, almost afraid, as he saw exhaling from the black pits of each nail hole, and from each gouged inscription of blood, an ectopla ectoplasm, bluish, 
and from the blackest pit of all that issued the despair and its noise, a misty enfoldment which materialized as a musing woman who lifted the body as a child's, effortless, and walked out of the prison with it, singing gently. And as I've said here before, I think especially in the last episode, last two episodes, uh, his Ted Hughes' strengths were in the 70s, and um, everything that he writes afterwards that is at its strongest, at least to me, either looks back to Crow, which uh, I think take what you want but pay for it does, or it looks back to the straight uh, nature poems he did in the late 70s, which I think some of the others do here. Um, take what you want but pay for it seems almost like a leftover from Crow, but also does not have quite its edge either. Uh, let's see here. And one more poem here. This is another one that was uncollected, written from written uh, between 1992 and 1997, called Mother Tongue. I hear her talking. She is trying out a flute. Not the flute, but the flute's notes. Not the flute's notes, but the ceilings and the floors of the flute's palace. And all the winding stairs at dancing to the searching voice of the flute. Now she sways over a cello. The hairs of the bow are the hairs of my body miraculously lengthened. She regards them as hers. She uses them with abandon flings her arm in the hand holding the bow. The strings of the cello are the fibers of the umbilicus we shared long ago. So long ago my memory of our sharing it in the cave mouth is lost, far beyond the event horizon, in the black hole out of which her music still pours. Again, at least to me, whatever you make of that poem, Sounds like a leftover from a story from Crow. Now, in 1997, Hughes published a book called Tales from Ovid. And uh, it's a huge book. And I enjoyed a lot of it, but uh, I'm only going to read one of the poems here because they're all uh, quite long. And as much as I do like them, they are still, and even though it's not a strict translation of Ovid, it is still Hughes trying to be somebody else. He's putting on a voice that isn't naturally his. Um, but it makes sense that it's Ovid too, because the poet that Hughes most admired was Shakespeare, and the poet that Shakespeare got the most from was Ovid. And the one I'll read here seems closest to... Uh, what people seem to have believed of Hughes's life, the Hughes myth, um, but also uh, the closest to his concerns in poetry, which is uh, sex, violence, and the violence that love and infatuation and sex can lead to, and the destruction of family that it can lead to. 
Um, for those of you who haven't read read it in Ovid, you might as well go back and read it if you like what you uh, are about to hear. And for those who know their T.S. Eliot, their wasteland, um, this is one of the poems in Ovid's Metamorphoses that T.S. Eliot references in the wasteland. And indeed, uh, this is that is where I first encountered Ovid and this story. There's a brutal story of King uh, Terius and what he does to his sister's wife. And this is a fairly long poem, but uh, it moves with the way that Hughes is able to do this. So let's give this a try. Pandion, the king of Athens, saw King Terius was rich and powerful as himself. He was also descended from the god Mars, so Pandion gave his daughter to Terius and thought himself happy. Hymen and Juno and the Graces, those deities who bless brides, shunned this marriage. Instead, the bridal bed was prepared by the Furies, who lit the married pair to it with torches, stolen from a funeral procession. Then an owl flew up from its dark hole to sit on the roof directly above their bed. All that night it interrupted their joy, alternating little mewing cries with prophetic screams of catastrophe. And this was the accompaniment of omens, when Terius, the great king of Thrace, married Procne and begot Itius. But all Thrace rejoiced. Thereafter, the day of their wedding and the prince's birthday were annual jubilees for the whole nation. So ignorant are men. Five years passed. Then Procne spoke to her husband, stroking his face, saying, If you love me, give me the perfect gift, a sight of my sister. Let me visit her, or better still, let her visit us. Go. Promise my father her stay here can be just as brief as he pleases. At a command from Terius, oar and sail brought him to Athens. There King Pandion greeted his son-in-law. Terius began to explain his unexpected arrival, how Procne longed for one glimpse of her sister, Philomela. But just as he was promising the immediate return of Philomela, once the two had met, there, mid-sentence, Philomela herself, arrayed in the wealth of a kingdom, entered. Still unaware that her own beauty was the most astounding of her jewels, she looked like one of those elfin queens you hear about, flitting through the depths of the forests. Terius felt his blood alter thickly. Suddenly he himself was like a forest when a drought wind explodes it into a firestorm. She was to blame, her beauty, but more the king's uncontrollable body. Thracians are sexually insatiable, and the lust that took hold of him now combined the elemental forces of his national character and his own. His first thought was, buy her attendants and her nurses with bribes, then turn the girl's own head with priceless gifts. 
cash in your whole kingdom for her. His next thought was simply to grab her and carry her off, then fight to keep her. He was the puppet of instant obsession. No insane plan gave him pause if it promised to make her his. All of a sudden, wildly impatient, he pressed Pandion again with Procne's request, the glove of his own greed. The passion made him persuasive. When he went too far, he swore Procne sickened to see her sister. He even wept as he spoke, as if he had brought her tears with him, as well as her pleading words. God in heaven, how blind men are. Everybody who witnessed it marveled at what this man would do for his wife's sake, the length he would go to. And yet the acting was irresistible. Philomela was overwhelmed. She wept too, hugging her father, pleading through her tears. As he loved her and lived for her happiness, she begged him to grant her this chance, the worst that any woman ever suffered. Terius stared at the princess, imagining her body in his arms. His lust was like an iron furnace, first black, then crimson, then white, as he watched her kiss and caress her father. He wished himself her father, in which case his intent would have been no less wicked. King Pandion surrendered at last to the doubled passion of his daughters. Ecstatic, Philomela wept and thanked him for his permission, as if he had bestowed some enormous prize on her and her sister, rather than condemned them, as he had, to the fate that would destroy them both. The sun went down. A royal banquet glittered and steamed. The guests, replete, slept. Only the Thracian king, Tereus, tossed, remembering Philomela's every gesture, remembering her lips, her voice, her hair, her hands, her glances, and seeming to see every part her garments concealed, just as he wanted it. So he fed his lust and stared at the darkness. Dawn lit the wharf at last for their departure, and now King Pandion implored his son-in-law to guard his charge. I lend her to you, because you and she and her sister were persuasive. By your honor, by the gods, by the bond between us. Protect her like a father. Send her home soon, this darling of my old age. Time will seem to have stopped till I see her again. Philomela, come back soon if you love me. Your sister's absence alone is more than enough. The king embraced his daughter and wept. Then asked both Terius and the girl, to give him their hands as seals of their promise. He joined their hands together, beseeching them to carry his blessing to his far-off daughter and his grandson. There the father choked in his goodbye. His voice collapsed into sobs, overwhelmed of a sudden by fear, inexplicable, icy, a goose-flesh of foreboding. The oars bent and the wake broadened behind the painted ship. Philomela watched the land sinking, but Tereus laughed softly. And he says, I've won. My prayers are granted. She is mine. He was in a fever for the delights that he deferred, only with difficulty. 
and the nape of her neck was aware of his eyes as he gloated on her like an eagle that has hoisted a hair in its grip to its inescapable tower. The moment the ship touched his own shore, Terius lifted Philomela onto a horse and hurried her to a fort behind high walls hidden in a deep forest, and there he imprisoned her. Bewildered and defenseless, failing to understand anything, and in a growing fear of everything, she begged him to bring her to her sister. His answer was to rape her, ignoring her screams to her father, to her sister, to the gods. Afterwards, she crouched in a heap, shuddering, like a lamb still clinging to life after the wolf has savaged it, and for some reason dropped it. Or like a dove, a bloody rag, still alive under the talons that stand on it. Then, like a woman in mourning, she gouged her arms with her nails, she clawed her hair, and pounded her breasts with her fists, shrieking at him, You disgusting savage, you sadistic monster, the oaths my father bound you to, were they meaningless? Do you remember his tears? You are inhuman. You couldn't understand them. What about my sister waiting for me? What about me? What about my life? What about your marriage? You have dragged us all into your bestial pit. How can my sister think of me now? Your crime is only half done. Kill me and complete it. Why didn't you kill me first before you destroyed me that other way? Then my ghost at least would have been innocent. But the gods are watching. If they bother to notice what has happened, if they are more than the puffs of air that go with their names, then you will answer for this. I may be lost. You have taken whatever life I may have had and thrown it in the sewer, but I have my voice and shame will not stop me. I shall tell everything to your people, yes, to all Thrace. Even if you keep me here, every leaf in this forest will become a tongue to tell my story. The dumb rocks will witness all heaven will be my jury. Every god in heaven will judge you. Terius was astonished to be defied and raged at and insulted by a human being and startled by the sudden clutch of fear as her words went home, speechless, mindless, in a confusion of fear and fury. He hauled her up by the hair, twisted her arms behind her back and bound them, and then drew her sword. She saw that, as if she were eager, and bent her head backwards, and closed her eyes, offering her throat to the blade still calling to her father and to the gods, and still trying to curse him as he caught her tongue with bronze pincers, dragged it out to its full length, and cut it off at the root. The stump recoiled, silenced, into the back of her throat, but the tongue squirmed in the dust, babbling on, shaping words that were now soundless. It writhed like a snake's tail, freshly cut off striving to reach her feet in its death struggle. After this, again and again, though I can hardly bear to think about it, let alone believe it, the obsessed king, like an automaton, returned to the body he had mutilated for his gruesome pleasure. 
Then, stuffing the whole hideous business deep among his secrets, he came home, smooth-faced to his wife. When she asked for her sister, he gave her the tale that he had prepared. She was dead, and his grief as he wept convinced everybody. Procne stripped off her royal garments and wrapped herself in black. She built a tomb without a body for her sister, and there she made offerings to a ghost that did not exist, mourning the fate of a sister who endured a fate utterly different. A year went by. Philomela, staring at the massive stone walls and stared at by her guards, was still helpless, locked up in her dumbness and her prison. But frustration, prolonged, begets invention, and a vengeful anger nurses it. She set up a Thracian loom and wove on a fabric scarlet symbols that told in detail what had happened to her. A servant, who understood her gestures but knew nothing of what she carried, took this gift to Procne, the queen. The tyrant's wife unrolled the tapestry and saw the only interpretation was the ruin of her life. She sat there, silent and unmoving, as if she thought of something else entirely. In those moments her restraint was superhuman. But grief so sudden, so huge, made mere words seem paltry. None could lift her lips one drop of its bitterness, and tears were pushed aside by the devouring single idea of revenge. Revenge had swallowed her whole being. She had plunged into a labyrinth of plotting where evil and good, right and wrong, forgot their differences. Now came the festival of Bacchus, celebrated every third year by the young women of Thrace. The rites were performed at night. All night long the din of symbols deafened the city. Dressed as a worshipper, Procne joined the uproar. With a light spear, vine leaves round her head, and a deer pelt slung over her left shoulder, she became a bacante among her attendants. Berserk, she hurled herself through the darkness, terrifying, as if possessed by the gods' frenzy. In fact, she was crazy with grief. So she found the hidden fort in the forest, and with howls to the gods, her troop tore down the gate, and Procne freed her sister, disguised her, disguised her as a bacante, and brought her home to the palace. Philomela felt she might die of sheer fear when she realized she was in the house of her ravisher. But Procne, shut in the safety of her own chamber, bared her sister's face and embraced her. Philomela twisted away. Shame tortured her. She would not look at her sister, as if she herself were to blame for the king's depravity. So she fixed her eyes on the ground like a madwoman. While her gestures flailed uselessly to tell the gods all that Terius had done to her, doubling his cruelty on her body, despoiling her name forever. Procne took her shoulders and shook her. She was out of her mind with anger, saying, Tears can't help us, only the sword, 
or if it exists, something more pitiless even than the sword. Oh, my sister, nothing now can soften the death Terius is going to die. Let me see this palace, one flame, and Terius a blazing insect in it, making it brighter. Let me break his jaw, hang him up by his tongue, and saw it through with a broken knife. Then dig his eyes from their holes. Give me the strength, you gods, to twist his hips and shoulders from their sockets, and butcher the limbs off his trunk, till his soul for the very terror scatter away through the thousand exits. Let me kill him, oh, however we kill him. Our revenge has to be something that will appeal to heaven and hell and stupefy the earth. And while Procne raved, her little boy Itius came in. Her demented idea caught hold of his image. The double of his father, she whispered, silent, her heart ice. She saw what had to be done. Nevertheless, as he ran to her, calling to her, his five-year-old arms pulling at her to be kissed and to kiss her, and chattering lovingly through his loving laughter, her heart shrank. Her fury seemed to be holding its breath for that moment as tears burned her eyes. She felt her love for this child softening her ferocious will, and she turned to harden it, staring at her sister's face. Then looked back at Idias and again at her sister, crying, He tells me all his love, but she has no tongue to utter a word of hers. He can call me mother, but she cannot call me sister. This is the man you have married, O daughter of Pandion. You are your father's shame and his despair. To love this monster Terius or pity him, it must be a monster. It is monstrous. And catching her boy Idias by the arm, she gave herself no more time to weaken. Like a tiger on the banks of the Ganges, taking a new-dropped fawn, she dragged him into a far cellar of the palace. He saw what was coming. He tried to clasp her neck, screaming, Mama, Mama. But staring into his face, Procne pushed the sword through his chest. And then, though that wound was fatal enough, slashed his throat. Now the two sisters ripped the hot little body into pulsating gobbets. The room was awash with blood as they cooked his remains, some of it gasping in bronze pots some weeping on spits. And what follows here, the cannibal revenge feast, um, is something that occurs quite often, not just in the classical world and in those stories. And I leave it to others, I haven't had the chance to yet, uh, but I leave it to others to find out uh, if anyone has written a study about these things, about where these stories about poisoned family, uh, poisoned marriages, uh, women who are put in such a position that, uh, like Medea, killing their children is the only thing they can do to get any attention for their own plight. Um, how all of this became such a, uh, such a thread that you can find uh, in stories all over the place. And so there you go, uh, the little boy is murdered, 
and he is being put into the pot. And now it's time for the revenge feast. A feast followed. Procne invited one guest only, her husband. She called it a ritual peculiar to her native land and special for this day. When the wife served her lord without attendant or servant, Terius, ignorant and happy, lulled on the throne of his ancestors and swallowed with smiles and swallowed with smiles all his posterity as Procne served it up. He was so happy he called for his son to join him, saying, Where is Itius? Bring him. Procne could not restrain herself any longer. This was her moment to see him fall helpless onto the spike in the pit that she had dug for him. Your son, she said, is here already. He is here inside. He could not be closer to you. And I think, uh, as Ovid has it, she says, you have within all you have within you the one that you seek. Terius, though, was mystified. He suspected some joke. Perhaps Idias was hiding under his throne. Idias, he called out again. Come out, show yourself. The door banged wide open. Philomela burst in the throne room, her hair and gown bloody. She rushed forward and her dismembering hands, red to the elbows, jammed into the face of Terius, a crimson dripping ball, the head of Idias. For a moment, his brain refused to make any sense of it. But the joy she could not speak, Philomela released in a scream. Then it was his turn. His roar tore itself out of every fiber in his body. He heaved the table aside, shouting for the furies to come up out of hell with their snake heads. He tugged at his ribcage as if he might writhe himself open to empty out what he had eaten. He staggered about, sobbing that he was the tomb of his boy, then gripped his sword hilt and steadied himself as he saw the sisters running. Now his bellow was as homicidal as it was anguished. He came after them, and they who had been running seemed to be flying, and suddenly they were flying. One swerved on wings into the forest, the other, with the blood still on her breast, flew up under the eaves of the palace, and Terius charged blind, in his delirium of grief and vengeance, no longer caring what happened. He, too, was suddenly flying, on his head and shoulders a crest of feathers, instead of a sword, a long curved beak, like a warrior transfigured with battle frenzy, dashing into battle. He had become a hoopo. Philomela mourned in the forest, a nightingale. Procne lamented round and round the palace, a swallow. And so just as Ovid has it, you end each story by saying, so-and-so became this, so-and-so became that. That is the metamorphoses. Um, you can see why anyone who's been listening to the episodes of Hugh's poetry here why this story might be rendered so powerfully by him. And you can see why, uh, even see why someone as different than him as T.S. Eliot would have used 
uh, this story in The Wasteland, a poem that is uh, overstuffed with uh, anxieties over romantic love and sexuality and lust and uh, obsession and being besotted with this or that thing. Um, and that is sort of uh, where we leave Ted Hughes, I suppose, um, the life that he chose to make and the life that uh, you might say, like uh, like some of these characters, the, the, the sense of, of fate, um, of, uh, of having lived through so much tragedy, um, must have attracted him to stories like these. And um, I really don't know what else to say about it other than that. Um, and so that the very next episode we do on Hughes will finally take us to that moment in 1998 when his book of poems called Birthday Letters was finally published and he felt that it was time to show the world or at least exercise the, the, the event itself just for himself as a personal release. Um, where he could finally give his side of the story of his relationship with Sylvia Plath. So we come to the end of the readings from Ted Hughes' poetry that I've been making over the last few months uh, tonight with readings from his 1998 book called Birthday Letters, which uh, finally give readers and the world and whoever else cares about it his, uh, Ted Hughes' thoughts or reflections or whatever you want to call it, um, more than 30 years later about his relationship with Sylvia Plath. And as you listen to the handful of poems that I read tonight, um, I think that you'll agree, if you've listened to the other episodes on Hughes, that um, after the huge achievement of the, the poems that he wrote in the 70s and early 80s, and after the sort of lull that happened where he didn't do much of anything of note until the mid-90s and then this book, you'll see that it is uh, an immensely different voice than the one that uh, he was writing in the 70s and certainly than the one that he started with uh, back in the late 50s. And you can see that it is a way of, uh, a kind of turning for him, of finding a new way to speak. But in another sense, you can see that this voice that he has conjured up to talk about his relationship with Sylvia Plath, this sort of easy, prosaic, and sort of maybe overlong way of speaking, it does feel at times, the poems do feel like letters or diary entries, and they are, as far as I can tell, much longer than any other poems that he, that he wrote. There are more two or three page poems in birthday letters than anywhere else, I think. Uh, the other conclusion you can come to is that uh, this voice would have been a one-off anyway, even if Hughes hadn't died shortly after the book was published, because it's hard to 
imagine what other subject he could have turned this voice to other than the very personal one that uh, that finally dealt with Sylvia Plath uh, in poetry. Now, what we have here, just read a few things beforehand. And the first is that on January 17th, 1998, a Saturday, uh, the London Times on the front page above the fold, uh, just underneath the uh, title, the London Times, uh, was a, uh, a headline which said, revealed the most tragic literary love story of our time. And there followed an article and I think a few uh, excerpts uh, of the poems. Um, Hughes sort of kept this book a secret and his publishers were able to, or I should say beforehand, Hughes kept the poems that he wrote in this book a secret for at least a decade, and in some cases more than that. Uh, Seamus Heaney wrote him a letter soon after the book was published, or I think just before it was published, and Heaney got an advanced copy. Um, and Heaney talks about his surprise at what Hughes was able to do. And when you think of how close Heaney and Hughes were, it says something that uh, Hughes didn't even tell Heaney that he was working on these poems. Uh, it became the, uh, the fastest selling book of poetry in the history of the English language. Even though, as I said, um, and this is according to Jonathan Bates' biography, it says, the critical consensus which emerged over the following weeks and months after the book was released, I believe in February of 1998, was that the poems were of deep sincerity and unique biographical value, but of very variable literary quality, mixing exquisite imagery and memorable phrases with pedestrian and prosaic passages. But, Jonathan Bates says, but nothing could stop the sales. And Hughes wrote a letter to uh, another poet named Kathleen Rain, and a Hughes's daughter read from this letter after her father died to accept the Whitbread uh, Award, the Whitbread Prize in 1999 for birthday letters. And it's worth hearing what Hughes has to say here. He says, I think those letters, those birthday letters, do release the story that everything I have written since the early 1960s has been evading. It was in a kind of desperation that I finally did publish them. I had always thought them unpublishably raw and unguarded, simply too vulnerable. But then I just could not endure being blocked any longer. How strange that we have to make public declarations of our secrets, but we do. If only I had done the equivalent 30 years ago, I might have had a more fruitful career certainly a freer psychological life. Even now, the sensation of inner liberation, a huge, sudden possibility of new inner experience. And he says much the same thing to a, in a letter to his son. Let me find it here. In a wonderful letter to his son, 
Nicholas Hughes. I want to get the date right on the letter. It's a long letter. Um, on February 20th, 1998. This is what he writes to his son, um, who was asleep in the apartment when Sylvia Plath killed herself and who uh, lived with his own version of Hughes's notoriety ever after. Um, Ted Hughes writes to his son, the best I could do through all those following years to deal with that giant psychological logjam of your mother and me was right, as if to her, quite privately, simple little attempts to communicate with her about our time together. They were what accumulated over the years to this birthday letters. Most of them I never dreamed of publishing. They exposed too much, I always thought. But they were inadequate to break up the logjam. Just writing them was inadequate to break up the logjam. That thickening, thickening glass window between me and that real self of mine, which was trapped in the unmanageable experience of what had happened with her and me. And so, because I could never break up the logjam, except for those three or four years in Ireland after, never open the giant plate glass door of it, that real self of mine could never get on with its life, could never join me and help me get on with my life. And a few paragraphs later, he adds, So I did it, and now I'm getting the surprise of my life. What I've been hiding all my life, from myself and everybody else, is not terrible at all, though you didn't want to read it. And the effect on me, Nikki, the sense of gigantic upheaval transformation in my mind, is quite bewildering. It's as though I have completely new, different brains. I can think thoughts I never could think. I have a freedom of imagination I have not felt since 1962. Just to have got rid of all that. Well, let's hope it wasn't all just a bit too late. And at least for me, uh, I would say that Hughes is obviously allowed to think whatever he wants about this book, uh, Birthday Letters. But for me, it's very interesting. It says something wonderful and uh, difficult, uh, maybe even tragic if you're in that frame of mind, about creativity. I think that even uh, a scholar who was very close to Hughes, uh, Keith Sagar, I believe his name is, I believe he, even he would admit that the strongest poetry Hughes wrote, the greatest period of creativity that he had, was in the, the major collections in the 1970s and in bits and pieces of the smaller press, more strange collections from the 1970s and early 80s. And it wasn't uh, so that when you get to the 80s and he sort of isn't doing much at all, um, that is when he also gets the, he becomes poet laureate of, uh, of the United Kingdom. And it says something there that awards like uh, the poet laureateship, these awards and these recognitions always come at the wrong time. They always come too late. They always come after the big things have been achieved. They're almost a recognition of what someone missed the first time around. Since he didn't, Hughes didn't really write 
all that much of note while he was Poet Laureate, except for birthday letters. And it reminds me of something in the life of Beethoven, where up until I think about 1810 or so, he had some of the most miraculous creative years of any artist of any kind, not just musician. But when around 1810 or so he achieved what few artists ever do, which is um, a financial independence, um, he can't quite figure out what to do with it, or whatever it was that he had escapes him. And this just seems to be how things go. And it's odd for me to, to think, or not odd, it just makes more and more sense these days that Hughes, at the end of his life, of course he would, he would say um, that birthday letters freed him up somehow, and that everything going forward would be something new, and of course we'll never know since he died shortly after. But it seems significant somehow that um, he's talking about a freer psychological life. He's talking about all of these things that uh, he's talking about the ease of recognition and the ease that he has achieved in the uh, when the 80s come around of domestic life, of settling down, um, a sort of not necessarily rest and relaxation, but a greater focus and a greater peace in his life. And we assume, and in Ted Hughes' final years, he wanted to assume as well that that would translate into uh, better and greater poetry when it seems, in fact, that it was the time of greatest upheaval and the time of greatest stress and the time of greatest um, doubt and uncertainty. That is the time, uh, the time where he was most domestically in turmoil um, and all the rest of it. Um, that is when he seems to have written his greatest poetry. But in any case, uh, as with many of his other books, you can say what you'd like about the whole collection, but uh, one, two, three, four, five. These five poems, I think, out of about 90 pages of poetry, I think hit the mark wonderfully well. The first poem about Plath is actually about, uh, that I'm going to read, is about their, uh, their wedding day. And this is called A Pink Wool Knitted Dress. And it says, In your pink wool knitted dress, before anything had smudged anything, you stood at the altar. Bloomsday. Rain so that a just-bought umbrella was the only furnishing about me, newer than three years inured. My tie, sole, drab, veteran RAF black, was the used-up symbol of a tie. My cord jacket, thrice-dyed black, exhausted, just hanging on to itself. I was a post-war utility son-in-law, not quite the frog prince, Maybe the swineherd stealing this daughter's pedigree dreams from under her watchtowered, searchlit future. No ceremony could conscript me out of my uniform. I wore my whole wardrobe, 
except for the odd, spare, identical item. My wedding, like nature, wanted to hide. However, if we were going to be married, it had better be Westminster Abbey. Why not? The dean told us why not. That is how I learned I had a parish church. St. George of the Chimney Sweeps. So we squeezed into marriage finally. Your mother, brave even in this U.S. foreign affairs gamble, acted all bridesmaids and all guests. Even magnanimity represented my family, who had heard nothing about it. I had invited only their ancestors. I had not even confided my theft of you to a closest friend. For best man, my squire to hold the meanwhile rings, we requisitioned the sexton. Twist of the outrage, he was picking children into a bus, taking them to the zoo, in that downpour. All the prison animals had to be patient while we married. You were transfigured, so slender and new and naked, a nodding spray of wet lilac. You shook, you sobbed with joy. You were ocean depth brimming with God. You said you saw the heavens open and show riches, ready to drop upon us. Levitated beside you, I stood subjected to a strange tense, the spellbound future. In that echo-gaunt weekday chancel, I see you, wrestling to contain your flames, in your pink wool knitted dress, and in your eye pupils, great cut jewels, jostling their tear flames, truly like big jewels, shaken in a dice cup, and held up to me. And the pair, after their marriage, went on to Spain. And here are two poems about that honeymoon in Spain. The first is called, You Hated Spain. You hated Spain. Spain frightened you. Spain, where I felt at home. The blood-raw light, the oiled anchovy faces, the African black edges to everything frightened you. Your schooling had somehow neglected Spain. The wrought iron grill, death and the Arab drum. You did not know the language. Your soul was empty of the signs. And the welding light made your blood shrivel. Bosch held out a spidery hand and you took it timidly a Bobby Sox American. You saw right down to the Goya funeral grin and recognized it and recoiled as your poems winced into chill, as your panic clutched back towards college America. So we sat as tourists at the bullfight, watching bewildered bulls awkwardly butchered, seeing the gray-faced matador at the barrier just below us, straightening his bent sword and vomiting with fear. And the horn that hid itself inside the blowfly belly of the toppled picador punctured what was waiting for you. Spain was the land of your dreams, 
the dust-red cadaver you dared not wake with, the puckering amputations no literature course had glamorized, the juju land behind your African lips. Spain was what you tried to wake up from and could not. I see you in moonlight, walking the empty wharf at Alicante, like a soul waiting for the ferry, a new soul still not understanding, thinking it is still your honeymoon in the happy world, with your whole life waiting, happy, and all your poems still to be found. And this next one is called uh, Drawing. Drawing calmed you. Your poker infernal pen was like a branding iron. Objects suffered into their new presence, tortured into final position. As you drew, I felt released, calm. Time opened when you drew the market at Benidorm. I sat near you, scribbling something hours, burned away. The stallkeepers kept coming to see you, had them properly. We sat on those steps in our rope soles and were happy. Our tourist novelty had worn off. We knew our own ways through the town's runs. We were familiar foreign objects. When he'd sold his bananas, the banana seller gave us a solo violin performance on his banana stalk. Everybody crowded to praise your drawing. You drew doggedly on, arresting details, till you had the whole scene imprisoned. Here it is. You rescued forever our otherwise lost morning. Your patience, your lip-gnawing scowl, got the portrait of a marketplace that still slept in the Middle Ages. Just before it woke and disappeared, under the screams of a million summer migrants and the cliff of dazzling hotels. As your hand went under Heptonstall to be held by endless darkness. That is the, uh, the family cemetery where she is uh, buried. While my pen travels on only 200 miles from your hand, holding this memory of your red, white-spotted bandana, your shorts, your short-sleeved jumper, one of the thirty I lugged around Europe, and your long brown legs propping your pad, and the contemplative calm I drank from your concentrated quiet. In this contemplative calm, now I drink from your stillness that neither of us can disturb or escape. And in this next one, they are back in England. This is called The Rabbit Catcher. It was May. How had it started? What had bared our edges? What quirky twist of the moon's blade had set us, so early in the day, bleeding each other? What had I done? I had somehow misunderstood. Inaccessible in your dibbic fury, babies hurled into the car, you drove. We surely had been intending a day's outing somewhere on the coast, 
and exploration. So you started driving. What I remember is thinking, she'll do something crazy. And I ripped the door open and jumped in beside you. So we drove west, west. Cornish lanes, I remember, a simmering truce as you stared in your iron face into some remote thunderscape of some unworldly war. I simply trod accompaniment, carried babies, waited for you to come back to nature. We tried to find the coast. You raged against our English private greed of fencing off all coastal approaches, hiding the sea from roads from all inland. You despised England's grubby edges when you got there. That day belonged to the Furies. I searched the map to penetrate the farms and private kingdoms. Finally, a getaway. It was a fresh day, full May, somewhere I'd bought food. We crossed a field and came to the open, blue push of sea wind. A gorse cliff, brambly, oak-packed combs. We found an eerie hollow just under the cliff top. It seemed perfect to me. Feeding babies, your Germanic scowl, edged like a helmet, would not translate itself. I sat baffled. I was a fly outside in the windowpane of my own domestic drama. You refused to lie there, being indolent. You hated it. That flat, draughty plate was not an ocean. You had to be away, and you went, and I trailed after like a dog along the cliff-top field edge over a wind-matted oak wood, and I found a snare, copper wire gleam, brown cord, human contrivance, sitting new set. Without a word, you tore it up and threw it into the trees. I was aghast, faithful to my country gods. I saw the sanctity of a trap line desecrated. You saw blunt fingers, blood in the cuticles, clamped round a blue mug. I saw country poverty raising a penny, filling a Sunday stew pot. You saw baby-eyed strangled innocence. I saw sacred ancient custom. You saw snare after snare and went ahead, writhing them from their roots and flinging them down the wood. I saw you ripping up precarious, precious saplings of my heritage, hard-won concessions from the hangings and the transportations to live off the land. You cried murderers. You were weeping with a rage that cared nothing for rabbits. You were locked into some chamber gasping for oxygen where I could not find you or really hear you let alone understand you. In those snares you'd caught something. Had you caught something in me, nocturnal and unknown to me? Or was it your doomed self, your tortured, crying, suffocating self? Whichever, those terrible, hypersensitive fingers of your verse closed round it and felt it alive. The poems like smoking entrails, came soft into your hands.
and I suppose those are my favorite parts of these poems, is Hughes admitting that through whatever it is they went through, she was always gathering the energy for her poems. Your poems still to be found, it says in the one I just read, and here the poems like smoking entrails came soft into your hands. Um, it's that thing that we do, um, it's that thing that I've done this year, saying that uh, whatever 2021 has been, especially following what 2020 was, at least I got all of those Shakespeare poems written, and somehow it seems to have been worth it. Um, and now we come to this. This will be the last poem I will read from Ted Hughes. I'll still spend some time with his letters, and when I put all of the podcasts of his poetry together that I've read, I'm sure I'll tack on an introduction or something. But this will be the last poem, and you can see here and make of it what you will, the autobiography, the, uh, the love of nature, the love of myth, and the sort of combining of all of them. And you can see it as ridiculous, the pretense of this. There's already pretense in assuming that people will want to read uh, 90 of your poems about uh, a relationship you once had. But of course, Hughes knew that people did want to read that, and it became such a bestseller. Um, you can think all of that, or you can just be moved by um, the story of this relationship and the, the poetry and the heart and the emotion it still, it still gave birth to more than 30 years afterwards and only a few months before Ted Hughes died. So appropriately enough, this last poem I'll be reading here is called Life After Death. What can I tell you that you do not know of the life after death? Your son's eyes, which had unsettled us with your Slavic, Asiatic, epicanthic fold, but would become so perfectly your eyes became wet jewels, the hardest substance of the purest pain, as I fed him in his high white chair. Great hands of grief were ringing and wringing his wet cloth of face. They wrung out his tears, but his mouth betrayed you. It accepted the spoon in my disembodied hand that reached through from the life that had survived you. Day by day his sister grew, paler with the wound she could not see or touch or feel, as I dressed it each day with her blue Breton jacket. By night I lay awake in my body, the hanged man, my neck curve uprooted and the tendon which fastened the base of my skull to my left shoulder, torn from its shoulder root and cramped into knots. I fancied the pain that could be explained 
if I were hanging in the spirit from a hook under my neck muscle, dropped from life, we three made a deep silence in our separate cots. We were comforted by wolves. Under that February moon and the moon of March, the zoo had come close. And in spite of the city, wolves consoled us. Two or three times each night, for minutes on end, they sang. They had found where we lay. And the dingoes and the Brazilian-maned wolves all lifted their voices together with the gray northern pack. The wolves lifted us in their long voices. They wound us and enmeshed us in their wailing for you, their mourning for us. They wove us into their voices. We lay in your death, in the fallen snow, under falling snow, as my body sank into the folktale, where the wolves are singing in the forest for two babes who have turned in their sleep into orphans beside the corpse of their mother. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.